Radio Mano Papachango. If you follow me on Instagram, uh, Chris Ryan, PhD, you'll see lots of photos from the last week or so of amazing, beautiful scenery. And that's because a buddy of mine, good, good friend, Martin, came from Amsterdam to visit me in Portland here before we leave. And uh, I took a week off and uh, we drove all over the place, drove out to the coast one day and then... Um, uh, my buddy Justin, uh, who you probably know, uh, he was uh, episode 99 of this podcast, was Justin, the fireman. Uh, Justin has a buddy who has a cabin on the Deschutes River, way out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, miles and miles of dirt road to get there. And it's just lovely. And we were out there, and you're right across the river from the Indian Reservation, not a building in sight. You sit there on the porch of this cab and you look across this beautiful river and there's absolutely nothing that you can see that tells you what century it is. There's not a house. There's not an antenna. There's nothing. The only thing is occasionally a rafter will go by in the river. That's it. So we were out there hanging out, hiking, uh, watching out for rattlesnakes, shooting guns, doing you know manly country rural stuff then we drove from there we were out there a few nights then we drove down to uh, crater lake so martin could see crater lake by the way i tried to get martin to do a podcast because we've known each other about 25 years i thought it would be interesting to talk a bit about how our lives have changed in the last 25 years Um, But Martin was um, reluctant to do it. He's not a public guy, and he didn't really feel like talking about private stuff publicly, which I can understand, Um, especially since, you know, over the years, we've probably 70 or 80 percent of our conversations have involved women. So I'm not sure what we would talk about. But um, anyway, we drove down to Crater Lake, saw Crater Lake, spent the night at a place called Shady Grove in a motel we found there. And then we drove up from there uh, a couple days ago. And we're on the highway on Route 5. And suddenly there was a police car behind me, flashing lights, no siren, but flashing lights. And he came up fast. I didn't even, one minute, there's nobody behind me. Next minute, this guy's right behind me. Of course, you know, you see a police car flashing lights behind you, you get a little frisson. And anyway, he blew by, wasn't interested in us, blew right by, got off at the exit right in front of us. And then we saw another car, another police car coming the other direction. And then another one. And then another one. And then three together. And then another one. And then helicopters. Like, what the fuck? Well, we had just driven through Roseburg, a site of the latest mass American slaying of innocents. And uh, we drove through about... uh, right about the time that the guy was shooting people. 
because um, the police cars started coming immediately and we were maybe five miles um, from there when when uh, the police cars were all all over the place so uh yeah we we were there it was um it was interesting we turned on the radio to see because i thought there'd been a big car accident or something and they were already talking about it you know maybe 20 minutes half an hour later strange time strange country this is america I had just uh, been, you know, shooting a pistol into a target two days before that. And uh, Martin, he's Dutch, as I said. He he took the gun. He hadn't held guns. I think he'd held a shotgun at some point in the past. And uh, he took a few shots and immediately just gave, gave it back. He wasn't, he didn't like the feeling of having that explosion in his hands. Um. I don't know what to what to make of these things. Nobody does. And, you know, my opinion doesn't matter, so I don't really need to talk about it. But it does feel like it's becoming sort of an American sacrament in some way. There's a ritual. There's, um, you know, as Obama said, it's it's all sort of predictable now what happens. It's the same ritualized conversations leading to the same impasse, the same complete lack of comprehension between the two sides, the one side that says, obviously, this is a problem, and the obvious way to deal with it is to pass laws to get these things out of here. And the other side that says, no, no, we need more. We need more guns. That's how we'll be safer. More guns. And then there's the third minor party in this conversation that's saying it's all about mental health yeah well here's the thing young male mammals uh, tend to be dangerous and uh, so the mental health thing is important and I I don't disagree with that Um, there are serious indications of mental illness in most of these people and, and you could say it's it's a fait accompli. It's if someone goes out and shoots 20 people, then they're obviously mentally ill. Well, that's true, although then that calls into question our entire criminal justice system, which is based on the presumption that the person should be punished because they knew what they're doing. But if we say there's mental illness, then we don't at least in theory, we don't execute people who are mentally ill, right? They have to prove that they're competent to stand trial. The prosecution has to prove that they understood what they were doing. But what does that even mean? And, And to do something like that, aren't you, by definition, mentally ill? So I don't know. I don't really understand what the fuck is going on. But I do know that some countries have passed laws that eliminated guns, that made them illegal. They got them out of the hands of most people, at least handguns and assault rifles. And these sorts of things stopped happening. Now, I'll get lots of nasty emails from people telling me how full of shit I am. And what's interesting, I mean, I said something on Twitter about this and I got all this blowback. And I don't mean to mischaracterize anyone, but seriously... This is true. Most of the pro-gun tweets I got back contained spelling errors. And that's in 140 characters. I don't know. Anyway, 
So, Roseburg, that was our brush with, uh, with history. But it does feel like a ritual. It feels like a religious service. It feels like a sacrificing of the virgins or something. Because, like I said, we have the same sort of ritualized TV coverage. The president comes on and talks about the tragedy. And our hopes and prayers go out to the families of the victims. And then there will be, you know, blah, 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 talking about why he did it, where he got his guns. And then we'll forget about it. And it'll happen again. I mean, if those kids... In uh, Newburgh, if that wasn't enough to change something, I mean, really? Like, what was it, 20 kids, 30 kids? I don't even remember. And teachers, that's not enough to change something, then fuck it, nothing's going to change it. This country's off the fucking rails, man. I don't know. Anyway, before we go any further into that, let's do something fun. Uh, Amazon orders. I really appreciate all of you who buy things at Amazon uh, through my affiliate link. It's a fantastic way to support the podcast, and it costs you nothing other than a click. So if you haven't done it yet, you can go to uh, chrisryanphd.com. You'll see an Amazon link in the right um, margin there. Click on that and then bookmark that page, the first page you get to on Amazon, because that's got the code in the the URL, and then anything you buy from that page, uh, I get a percentage. We get seven, eight percent, depending on what the product is. Sometimes it's as low as two percent, um, but uh, it varies by the product, and it costs you nothing extra. So it's a very cool way to take a little of that Amazon money and support this podcast um, or any other podcast. Uh, Duncan Trussell's got the same thing going on over there, so split it up or whatever. Um, Here's some stuff that people have been buying. Very cool stuff. Uh, Calvin Klein women's compression tank top. Black, small. Nice. I'll bet that looks good. Somebody bought a Charmaine women's stripe boned corset. Ouch. Nice. And then we've got some uh, drawstring lime zest elastic pants. That's always cool. Uh, what else we got? I became a teacher for the money and the fame women's t-shirt. <laughs> okay, somebody bought that for their teacher, I guess. We've got a women's long sleeve rash guard UPF 50 plus wetsuit. Nice. All right, you're going to have a lot of fun in that. In the books, I see some people have been ordering books through our site, my website. There's a recommended reading uh, at chrisryanphd.com. Some books I recommend, some of them by guests on the podcast, some just great books that I've really enjoyed over the years. And uh, so I see people have been ordering stuff there. Somebody got two copies of A Primate's Memoir by Robert Sapolsky. You are going to love that. Uh, I really hope you do enjoy that. Renegade History of the United States, Thad Russell, frequent guest at Play in the Fields of the Lord. Fantastic novel. Uh, One of my favorites. Captain Underpants and the Sensational Saga of Sir Stinks-A-Lot. I don't know. That wasn't on my website, but I'd be interested to hear how that goes. Uh, Three copies of Desert Solitaire. Great book. Somebody got a copy of Limited Once, Unlimited Means, a reader on hunter-gatherer economics and the environment. That is a great book. I use that a lot in researching uh, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. If you're interested in the... um, the economics of hunter-gatherers, which isn't the boring economics you think of. It's how did they share resources? How do they distribute meat? How do they deal with 
you know, the things that come up when you're living together in a group of people who gets what. Uh, very interesting and not not dry. Somebody got a book called Neuropsychedelia, the Revival of Hallucinogen Research Since the Decade of the Brain. That sounds good. I see someone bought uh, two copies of The Wizard of the Upper Amazon. That's a fantastic story of um, a shaman who uh, essentially he was, I think, a mixed mixed race mestizo like most people in South America are. Um, and he was with his, if I remember the story correctly, he was with his father and his uncle. He was a little kid. He was maybe eight. And they were, I don't know if they were loggers or rubber tappers or what, but um, they came upon some Indians and they killed the two men and they took the boy and they raised the boy to be a shaman. And um, then when he was 19 or 20, he had a vision that his mother needed him and he... Uh, he left the tribe and went back to Lima and helped his mother who was ill. And he then went on to become sort of a famous healer in Latin America and moved between these two worlds of the Indians who had raised him and um, the Western society. Very interesting book uh, based on, it's true, um, and uh, highly recommended. Anyway, Wizard of the Upper Amazon, great book. Somebody bought a very expensive camera. Thank you. Uh, they got a Sony CyberShot 20.2 megapixel digital still camera for almost a thousand bucks. That's really cool because 37 bucks of that comes to support the podcast. 4%. Motorola Nexus 6 unlocked cell phone, 64 gigabyte, midnight blue. Thank you. 400 bucks, 16 comes to the podcast. Somebody bought a. Uh, Lenovo 17-inch laptop. Very nice. Thank you. $944. 25 bucks to the podcast. Thank you. Someone's growing mushrooms out there. They bought a manure-based mushroom substrate in mushroom grow bags. Very cool. Fresh mushrooms. Nice. Got some musicians listening to the podcast. Somebody got a Casio 88-key full-size digital piano. Very nice. And uh, PV Audio Performer Package includes mixer, two speakers, two stands, and two mics. All right. Speaking of music, here's a cool thing. Buddy of mine, uh, Mike, Mike Lang, um, we met when we were 15. I think I taught him to drive, and he taught me how to drink beer. Um. I think he got the better end of that deal. Anyway, Mike and I have known each other a long time. And uh, when I met Mike, uh, I would not say that my musical um, education had really begun. He he really started it and, because he's such a great musician. And um, he played classical music. He played funk, bass. He played all sorts of different stuff. And I never really liked classical music until one day... Mike and I were hanging out at uh, my place, my parents' house. My dad plays piano, and um, Mike sat down at the piano and played something that he had composed. And I heard classical music for the first time. I mean, I had heard it before, but it always just sounded like, you know, whatever, bullshit. It it, It didn't connect to me at all. I listened to that piece that Mike played, and it's a Chopin-esque piece where he was 
I guess the assignment was to write something that sounded like uh, Chopin, his style. And when he played that piece for me, you know, of course, it was my friend. So I was predisposed to be open and to, to really give it a fair hearing as opposed to, you know, whatever, something, some record or the radio that's impersonal. This is my buddy here, and I'm watching him play this on my pian- my father's piano, and I heard it. I felt it. I felt the nostalgia. I felt the love. I felt the 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 life in the music for the first time. And uh, last week, Mike apparently was going through some old stuff, some old hard drives. I don't know what. And, oh, no, he found the cassette. That's what it was. He found a cassette of himself playing that piece of music, and he sent it to me. Here it is. What a treat to hear that again. I don't know if you can hear it, um, but that that opened the door for me. I, I went from that and I started listening to a lot of Chopin and um, that just pulled me in. And, you know, it's become... I can't say I listen to classical music every day. Uh, there were times in my life when I did, and uh, I hope my life will reconfigure in a way that um, brings a lot more music back into my daily routine. But um, it's one of the joys of my life, and uh, and I have to thank Mike for that. Love to have him on the podcast someday. That would be an interesting experience. Um, anyway, the today's guest. Jesus, look at us. It's it's 19 minutes in. I haven't even mentioned the guest yet. Um, West is his real name. His, his given name is Nathan West, but everyone calls him West. And uh, he's an interesting cat. He wrote to me. Now, I think we talk about this in the podcast, so I won't go through it too much. But um, he wrote to me in a period of his life where he had traveled. He'd already been out on the road. And... Um, You'll hear a very interesting life story. He he was uh, living with um, Aboriginal people in northwestern Australia, I believe, or maybe just north central Australia, way out in the middle of the fucking nowhere. And um, he sent me an email and sounded like a really cool guy. We corresponded a little bit. He was sort of trying to decide what to do, you know, where to where to go. He was at a crossroads and. Uh, and I think you'll hear that he made some very interesting decisions and it's turning out extremely well for him. And uh, so I'm very happy that, you know, I've been doing the podcast long enough now that there are stories like this where there's a guy 
like West, who reached out to me two, three years ago, and um, and I've seen the changes in his life over the last couple of years. And uh, he was in the Amazon and had to get back to the UK uh, to graduate school, and he arranged to come through Portland. That's not a direct flight, uh, certainly. So I really appreciate having had a chance to meet him in person, sit down in the park and have this conversation and, and share it with you. Um, speaking of music, uh, West has a good buddy who's a very uh, well-known musician, Kim Churchill. And uh, he reached out to Kim and made sure that it was cool that we used some of his music and, and Kim was down with it. So you're going to hear a couple of songs by Kim Churchill uh, down the road a little bit on the podcast, but I wanted to to um, play you in or play me out, play him in with a song called War Rages On by Jordy Lane, uh, also an Australian guy. Um, Wes turned me on to this song and it has become a song I listen to uh, every couple of days. It's a beautiful song. Uh, it's about being a traveler, so it's very appropriate. He's singing about Vietnam, uh, sounds to me like he was teaching English in Vietnam because he's got some kids in a class who are asking him if he rode a kangaroo to school. And and just some of the, the things you see when you're traveling in Southeast Asia and some of the feelings you can have. And uh, it's a very um, powerful expression of that kind of time and place. Hope you enjoy it. upon the hot life fumes but it needs a little food 
In the main street of town Like street clowns Putting on a show for the crowd that surrounds And a little girl chokes upon the smoke That fills this Saigon sky She puts out a hand Prays to her lord Says don't let me die So I give her some food And fifty thousand dong But nothing compensates For a world that's done you wrong For she was born into a life Where silent war rages on Oh, her heart is aching for some peace within While here I am just soaking by the lady I've been missing To my hotel I softly sing this song There's such a sadness in Saigon So I think we're good. Uh, I'm here in Laurelhurst Park, beautiful Laurelhurst Park. The heat has uh, dissipated a little bit. And I'm with uh, West. Only his mother calls him Nathan. My mother's the only person who calls me Dr. Ryan. So there you go. (laughs) So West is uh, a white a white dude with dreadlocks, but what's what's it say on your website or somewhere I saw? Yeah, on my Twitter, I said not your average white guy with dreadlocks. That's what it is, yeah. right? Yeah, because <laughs> my, my my hair is functional. It's not representative of. It's not symbolic of uh, oh, anything a, I do. It's yeah. You're it's not just, a Rastafarian uh, or anything. No, it's just uh, if you see my hair before this, it just uh, it just. Um, yeah, it's it's just functional. It's right. easier this way. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, like I'm I'm a big uh, advocate of functional fashion. Yeah, you know when I see people working on their look, yeah. to me that screams bullshit. Yeah. Whatever the look is, right? It's like even if the look is like I'm a cool guy who doesn't give a shit about fashion. Yeah. Bullshit. You're spending time trying to look like a cool guy who doesn't give a shit about fashion. You know. So if it's functional then I buy it. But if it's, if you're working on it, if it requires product yeah. and like hours in front of a mirror, I don't buy it. That's a, um, well, isn't that the uh, plaid shirt tattoos beard of Portland that I've kind That's of picked it. up in my one day here? Dude, it's, it's <laughs> incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. And and that's exactly it because the look they're affecting is the like, I'm too cool to give a shit about stuff like this look. And I keep thinking, like, don't you get how, like, self-defeating that is? That you are in Portland 
with mm. the beard, the short hair, the plaid lumberjack shirt, the work boots with the fucking steel toe. I mean, it's just too perfect. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you really didn't give a shit, that beer would be scraggly, and, you know, you might not be wearing that particular plaid-looking... It's too much of a fucking uniform. Yeah. Anyway, I I ran about that shit all the time. Yeah, no, that was actually something I first thought getting here. Like, I came from, you know, close to the border of Peru and, and, uh, and Brazil, and... Three flights later, about 25 hours or so, I got into Portland wearing the same clothes, same underwear, everything I was wearing <laughs> when I left there, the heat of the Amazon. And I got here and I went from being the only, not only the only white guy, not only the only person with blonde hair, not only the only person with dreadlocks, the only person with all them three combined in a, in a, uh, in a jungle town that never seen any of them right. um, to somewhere I've never felt so aesthetically fit, like, <laughs> never fitted in so aesthetically perfect before. So yeah. it was kind of, yeah. it was a pretty kind juxtaposition just to float down the street. And, uh, yeah. And, it's uh, disturbing yeah. to fit yeah. in, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I hate it's, fitting in. Yeah, no, definitely. Living here might uh, get on my nerves, but a, a nice few-day visit might be all right. A few days yeah. is great. And it's it, a cool place. It, it is a cool place. Very it's a cool. lovely yeah. city, and people here are great. Like you just mentioned, you know, you're staying with somebody you don't even know who gave you keys to her place. Yeah. And, like, you know, there's a decency and level of trust here that I really like for a major American city. Definitely. Yeah. And maybe in Australia, it's that kind of thing's more common. I don't know, but... Uh, it blows my mind. It's probably just because it's close to Canada here. <laughs> it's coming down a little well, bit. Well, there's something about, like, the rain. I, I don't know what it is. Because uh, we were living yeah. in Vancouver for a couple of summers yeah. before we came here. And we really liked Vancouver. Uh, and we were even thinking of emigrating to Canada. But then they changed their immigration policy, which took us off the fast track, easy right. route yeah. to the you're in there with everyone else, go get a job get and come back yeah. route. Yeah. Fuck that. I'm not getting a job. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Why should I get a job? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, where where did you come in from? Were you in Iquitos or where were you? No, I was in, um, uh, I guess the closest main town is Pacalpa. So, Pacalpa. And this is like 72 hours ago you were down there? Uh, yeah. So I left, uh, well, I got here in Portland at what, 2 p.m. yesterday-ish. Right. Ish, and I went from Pacalpa, flew to Lima. Lima to Texas, Texas to Portland. So just straight. Yeah, it was maybe two days ago. Yeah, tops. So At least you don't have jet lag probably because it's more or less the same time. Yeah, and no, I feel pretty good after last night. Got a good sleep in. Yeah, I'm that's good. good. Yeah. 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 So you were saying before I turned on the mics, um, you were starting to talk about how you and I got in touch, which is mm. what, two years ago or something? Around that, probably the first email. Yeah, I think right. I sent you an email when uh, I guess I got some... Um, confirmation of these new studies that I'm going into. Right. But, um, yeah, I guess if I go down that rabbit hole there, um, yeah, I did the whole, I guess, I guess when you're kind of, this podcast is influencing a lot of younger kids or younger guys to kind of go and see the world and travel this certain way and trying to look at their life. Do I get stuck in the mundane working here or there or, right. you know, so they're making, trying hard with that decision and trying to see what to do. I was, I was in that mode, but before podcasts were really mainstream or before at least I was into them anyway. And um, I guess I had more influence just from books I was reading. Like I was really, back then, I was really into like, you know, Thoreau and yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So Paul like, or Henry David? Henry David, yeah. So I was like... Paul Thoreau's pretty good. Yeah, today. no, I've seen a lot of his books. I haven't read any yet. But um, yeah, mainly like his essay, Walking. I'll just keep that like a little yeah, Bible. Yeah, a great essay. Yeah, yeah. little Bible in, in my backpack. I'd keep that everywhere. But yeah, so after, so I was stuck in... 
if you start from the start, I was just like in high school, your average student, like totally average, just you know, middle classes, not smart classes, anything like that. Um, Did you have dreadlocks in high school? No, I didn't. I had like <laughs> my hair is like sheep's wool. Oh yeah, just like sheep's wool. I should get dreadlocks. Every, yeah, because I I like having long hair, yeah. right? But every time I grow my hair long, I get Einstein head. You yeah. know, it just goes like that's what, that's what mine does. Yeah, so you can just. So I'd be like an old, an old former oh. redhead with dreadlocks yeah. and, a, and a big bald spot. You can be that guy. That's a good look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get some sandals and socks yeah. and like a big pot belly. I got the belly going. I'm halfway there. No, if you, yeah, it sounds like it. it's go, a, to, it's, go it's, to Thailand and hook up with an 18 year old. It's a committed path, but um, <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> At least you'll fit, you'll fit in in Portland anyway. <laughs> well, not in Portland. <laughs> I'm thinking like, you know, yeah. Uh, what's the name of that place in Thailand? Where all, Pattaya, where all the like sleazy German dudes are right, with their yeah, yeah. teenage girlfriends. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so you're in high school. You're yeah. a typical dude. Yeah, no, high school and that. I uh, I remember thinking, there's no way I'm going to university. Like, no, maybe the situation's a bit different in Australia to here mm-hmm. in America. Like, it's pretty much, I guess, to really succeed here. Like, at least the, the girl I'm staying with now, she said, you basically kind of need a master's these days to work here and there or do that. You know, to to kind of work up the ladder. Right. Um, but yeah, in Australia, especially in, in yeah, year 11, I was just like, there's no way I'm going to apply to a university. I'm just like, I'm not doing that. I'll just, you know, my dad had a building business. Um, I was just like, maybe I'll do something down that path. I was always interested in sports. So maybe I'll do something down that path, you know, if, you know, martial arts and soccer and that was kind of been my thing since a kid. So maybe I'll do something there. But uh, and eventually I sort of applied to university with like, you know, some different preferences in like the architecture building mm. kind of field as well as like sports sciences and stuff. And I was just see what happened. So yeah, um, got into university and yeah, just performed well I guess like it's a different delivery of system like mm. the course I did was like wasn't exam based it was a problem based learning so I did mm. a it's a bachelor of construction management as so it's like a mixture of um, structural engineering architecture and uh, management how to like manage a big construction project mm. so it's a four-year degree and um, the whole time I was just like I need to get out of here I'll do half of it and then I'll go travel and I'm like well but that kind of still ties me to this place to come back to and you know went through it you know, performed well, got, you know, got my first class honours and stuff like that, which was, which was, I guess, a really good ticket to have in your back pocket. Yeah. Um, but then I'm like, well, I'll travel after university. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll go and, like, I was working in a cadetship through my degree. Yeah. Um, a what? A cadetship. So I was like, they would give me a little bit of a stipend through, uh, through my degree, but I'd, I'd work for, it was working for the state government there. So. Right. It was a good experience. But when I finished, I'm like, well, I've got these good grades. I've got some good job offers. There's some money there. Maybe I should get some experience. Uh, you know? You're getting sucked into yeah. the whirlpool. <laughs> yeah. So, there like, I should, I should go and get some experience under my belt and, you yeah. know, then that'll kind of... I should get someone pregnant, too. Uh, yeah. Let's do that. And I did my absolute best to avoid <laughs> that. Strictly. Pretty strict about that. <laughs> that's um, the coup de grace right there. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. yeah that's, the, uh, that's, the, that's the anchor of all anchors. Yeah. No, but... um. Yeah, so I worked in a job for about two years and it was like a commercial, I guess. You know, I'd have a portfolio of maybe a few million dollars, five million dollars of different construction projects. There might be state-based schools. There might be like commercial like soccer grounds building, you know, like little stadiums and stuff like that, like little sports grounds. Um, So kind of designing and delivering those projects, which is like, I always thought it'd be fulfilling. And I'm like, this sounds like, you know, to be so entrenched in such a project and like see it see it come up out of the ground and right. like but 
that's very romantic of me because the world isn't like that. It's like you're hounded by your boss. How money, money, money? Right. Is this turning a profit? Are we getting the right. profit that we tended? Like we're behind schedule. Yeah, Come exactly. On. It's all. Yeah. It's that's the three. The three. Um, your three KPIs, key performance indicators, is uh, cost, um, time, and quality. Just those three. It's not like are you enjoying your job. It's not like um, anyway. I just yeah. really didn't. All my projects, because they all get assessed at handover, and did they make money? And yeah, you know, they they did. They're all successful. My, but I didn't. Uh, you know, there's clauses in my contract to get bonuses per project, that kind of stuff. That didn't happen. And eventually, I just like kind of had my name out there in um, volunteer companies for like for different um, volunteering experiences to do. And I got a call one day. I was actually doing a huge trip for one of my projects. It was about maybe eight hours away in like outback New South Wales. So I was in there, I got a call driving the car, I pulled over and answered and she's like, so we have a position that you're kind of perfect for in uh, Arnhem Land, Australia, which is like top in the middle, um, an indigenous um, reserve out there. And um, yeah, you've got it if you want it. Um, it costs money, like that, that kind of volunteering stuff you've got to pay for and that. And I'm like, yeah. well, this is like a, a key moment, like make this decision and... and uh, and get out, you know, as like Thoreau would say, you kind of got to let go of friends, family, and to really travel in this way and, and get out there, you kind of have to not cut those things, but really not be anchored by them. Like don't, don't be needing those kind of things for support, whether it's psychological or, or whatever it might be. And I remember having a, so I, I took it and I was so happy to tell my boss uh, that I'm leaving and really? yeah, I was really happy to tell him and, and he, he liked me, he did, but um, yeah, it was good to get out of there and um, yes, I sold everything that I owned. I kept, so, so wait, take yeah. me back to this moment in the car. So you pull the car over. She tells you this. Do you say yes right away I'll or you're like, yes, I'll get uh, back to you? Say yes, yes right phone. away. Yes and on you're on phone. your way to a project. Yeah, I was out there in uh, um, Lightning Ridge. Lightning Ridge, New South Wales. Lightning it's, Ridge. That's yeah, a cool name. It's um, known for its um, opals. That's all that's uh, there is opals. Yeah. Right? They have some special, uh, unique opal there. Yeah, Lightning Ridge. I love opals. Yeah. That's my favorite. I don't know much about them. You know how I, I was in Australia a couple mm. of years ago doing a speaking tour, yeah, and yeah. I went to this opal museum in, I think it was in Melbourne, but I'm not sure. Right. And the woman in there, nobody was there, so I ended up chatting with this woman for a while, and she explained to me the way opals are made. And, and maybe this is bullshit. People, I'll get a million emails telling me so. If yeah, it's bullshit, yeah. people love pointing that out. But, but anyway, this is what she told me, that... You've got the at the bottom of the ocean. There's an earthquake, and so a fissure opens in the rock, yeah. and water rushes in. Yeah. And then there's another earthquake that closes it. Right. So now you've got this water in absolute darkness under intense pressure yeah. for millions of years. Wild. That's what forms the opal. Yeah. So, so and then later, it you know the the crust shifts and it rises yeah. to the surface, and they mine it, and they find. That's what, like, this opal I, I bought from her was concave because she said that there was a small shell that went in, and so it formed around the curve of the shell. Yeah. Now, the shell's long since gone, yeah. but you've got this curved opal. Nice. So, I mean, it just blows my mind that you've got seawater in absolute darkness and under high intense pressure and heat mm-hmm. that becomes colorful and light. You know? yeah, it's pretty hard to describe opals. Yeah, um, it's so beautiful. What, what I didn't know that, so what makes that more wild is where I was in Lightning Ridge, which is known for opals, is nowhere near the ocean. Right, no Absolutely. water at all, probably. Well, it's yeah. dry. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, right. it's dry as dry gets. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> a little opal aside, so yeah. so you're, you're by the side of the road, you're like, fuck it, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. 
And then you, you like, when did you quit? How long after uh, that? Well, I told them straight away and then I think I had, like, I had to give two weeks notice or whatever it might have been. I don't really remember around that. But, um, yeah, proceeded to, um, you know, move out of my lease where I was living. I had, like, a nice little beach apartment with my mate. So we had a little batch pad, just surf every day uh, and sort of a lot of partying, a lot of working. But, right. you know, just kind of living that life for, right. what, your, your early 20s. And then... Uh, yeah, then, so I think it might have been four weeks from that call to when I left. Wow. Yeah, so in that time, I sold a car, a motorbike, paid my parents back some money that I owed them. How old were you? Uh, 22. 22. And were you already into Thoreau at that point? Yeah, yeah. So you're already sort of psychologically like, I want to hit the road, yeah, I want to get out. Yeah, whole vagabonding style. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so and like, well, this is a perfect kind of way to go, but I get, I've never been never not been supported by my parents but sort of um bit of a black sheep in my family me and my sister are a bit a bit alike but um you know they haven't no one's really traveled like I guess they've done holidays and stuff around my parents haven't tra- haven't traveled much um I think my mum's been in New Zealand Bali that doesn't really count um <laughs> and they just uh, actually just um, came to visit me in England which is like the biggest trip that they've ever had yeah, but yeah so I was just um yeah get out of there and and then see what the world offers me. And, and, and my, you know, my parents are like, well, this costs like $3,000, like Australian dollars to do this, to pay for your flights, your accommodation when you're out there. So you had a little donger, like a tiny little room that you'd stay in out there. And, um, and uh, yeah, but they're just like, well, I guess it's not really a smart decision. I didn't have that much money, you know. Um, but I'm like, I'll make it work. So I thought, well, what can companies benefit from this? What can What can other parts of other things I'm connected with benefit from what I'm going to do. I was going to mentor some um, indigenous youth out there um, who were doing a certificate two in construction. So they're, they're living on community out in Arnhem land. I think first contact was 1971. So it's, it's the freshest kind of contact in Australia that's left. Um, But there's two of the richest deposits of uranium in the world next door. So you have like a town built for the workers and you have still have the indigenous communities that are, that are floating around so the kids live the kids uh live on community and uh yeah and um get bussed into um get bussed into the town to kind of go to school and right. then go to the youth center after and and so i was working with these kids and there's a bit of a construction site there so i'm like i wrote basically sponsorship letters just to some large construction companies um to university i'm like this is how you can benefit from what i'm going to do you know university wants to up their indigenous enrollments and stuff like that um large construction companies want to um, cross-cultural relations on on the work site so you know my main my main uh, client when i was working was a company called land lease which is really huge global construction company so you just wrote letters saying here I am. I'm this guy. I'm going to be in this place. I've got this background. Yeah. Uh, here's what I can offer you. Yeah. What are you able to to uh, help fund me? Can you contribute to this project? Yeah. So smart move. Yeah. And um, I actually came out with a thousand extra dollars than I needed, which right. was donated to the to the school out there. Excellent. But, um, yeah. It was kind of funny though. My main client was Len Leases at the at the company I was working for, and. Um, uh-huh. And most of my projects were through them, and I remember we had a bit of a, um, a legal battle with some variations. I think they, they owed us around a million dollars that they were contesting, and so I spent a lot of time with lawyers, and I'd go down and meet their finance manager, and, and um, it, was all, it was all legit. Um, went down there, and they said, yeah, we approve all, all your variations, you know, we'll, we'll pay you them. So that was good. That made sure all my projects were um, <laughs> above the line. And um, 
But then that was me going down as project manager, Nathan West, working for this company. And then literally two weeks later, I, met, <laughs> I went down and met the GM for, 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 their, for the construction set, um, sector. They were um, they have like this fancy office ride on Darling Harbour and I go in this little white guy with dreadlocks, like small shitty dreadlocks, and uh, go into this fancy room where like computers pop out of the table and it's looking over the Harbour Bridge and all that. And then and the um, GM comes in. Like, I was sitting there for about five minutes waiting. He comes in, he's got, I've got five minutes. He's like, tell me, uh, tell me what you're doing. And then he knew it was you? Yeah, yeah, so it was was, was a meeting plan. So so he's like, tell us what you're doing. So I just was pretty open about it because there's no stress on me. Like, if you can give me money, then sure. But if you're not, then okay, that's all right. And then went down and he gave me a letter and said, yeah, we'll we'll give you $3,000 and let us know if you need more. Sweet. And I got $1,000 off my university as well, my undergrad, um, University, who I'd still be in touch with my supervisors, but I hadn't really been involved. I'd done some tutoring through uni, but but yeah, they were they were on board as well. So I had a bit of money there, and it was good to have that extra stuff because the um, principal of the school up there, because it's a mixed white fellow black fellow school out there, they um, he can't he can't um, say this funding's going to the indigenous kids or this funding's going to the mm. white kids. But with me donating, I said this goes to like the culture first class to to a project that they think is best suitable for, for them. Um, so it was good to be able to have that, to specify that when I gave it to them. But, um, yeah, so I did that and raised the funds. So that was a bit of a load off my back where I could where I could um, continue on. So, yeah, I went up there and I think maybe we'd get into that a bit later. But then that was the starting point. So then I just, well, what's close to here? Indonesia. So I jumped on a plane after after I finished out there for four months or so and spent, like month and a half two months just surfing Lombok and around Bali and when the surf was flat I'd go to the Gili Islands and hang out there or is that off the coast of Sumatra not Sumatra no. um, Lombok oh Lombok okay Lombok is off the coast of Lake Bali yeah it's the next one to yeah. the east of Bali yeah and then Gili T is kind of like just off Lombok oh okay yeah the Gili Islands uh, I was talking to there. someone the other day who had been surfing off some some islands off the coast of Sumatra. Yeah, Sumatra. Which is out where the where that big tsunami and yeah, all that shit happened. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty wild. Yeah, and then just continued on there for about two years, ended up in Canada and well I guess Yeah, kinda it was more living off the whim, I guess, in that kind of I kinda cringe a little thing about it now, but it's really hippie ish, you know, you trying to it was it was really good. It was, a, it was the way to go. I you know, I'd get a call. I've had a call. I had a, a good mate who was just living out of his van with a girlfriend on the east coast of, of Australia, just surfing every day, just sleeping on the, on the beach. Mm. And um, he's like, come back and do that. And I'm like, sweet, I'll come back. So I flew into Brisbane and spent like a month and a half just every single day trying to avoid the ranges because they come and find you if you're finally sleeping on the beach. But just kind of finding where the best surf is. And so living that kind of life for a little while and then I got a message off another mate who I used to live with, and he's like, I want to go to Whistler for New Year's. I heard it's a good party. I'm like, I'll come to Canada and I'll stay. <laughs> like, so I'd kind of, you know, I'd operate like that. And, you I know, mean, I got to Canada, got my only warm jacket stolen in Whistler. So I'm like, I'm going somewhere warmer. So then started, that's when I, that's <laughs> when I did it. That's when I did a hitchhike down uh, the West Coast. Took a, me and my mates took a car for a little bit, but then, um, just thought I'd keep going south. I spent like right. two months couch surfing and hitchhiking all the way down to almost San Diego. So this is after you and I corresponded or before? Before. before. This is all before. This I is mean, all before. You traveled a lot then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But somehow you ended up back there. Yeah. yeah so, okay. yeah, I did all like 
I hitchhiked down. I didn't really see any sights. I was just surfing, couch surfing, and hitchhiking. Just kind of. So you got a surfboard with you when you're. No, so I'd like I'd couch surf, and if it's a surf place, someone's got a surfboard. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a bitch trying to hitchhike with a surfboard. I did hitchhike with a guitar though. Maybe that I had a guitar, which was just kind of carabined to my bag, so it wasn't too bad. Mm. But um, yeah, and then I said um. My mate Kim, who you played on a recent podcast, oh right, yeah, Kim, Kim Churchill, Churchill yeah. Right, yeah, he was kind of done a few tours around Canada at that point, right. and um, um, he was actually recording in Canada at that point. So I got on a bus straight back up to Canada, and then I went out to Banff in the Rockies and did that whole like basically Banff is made up of Australians in the winter. So I worked there for two weeks, and I got a message of Kim, and he's like, "Going on tour? You like? Do you want to?" Uh, you, you feel free to jump on board if, if you're keen. We'll be in, um, I can't remember the town that I was in, but it was like four hours or so away from Banff. So like done, quit the job straight away and walked down to the exit from Banff and threw the thumb, thumb out and pretty much got a lift straight away and got down with Kim and toured all of BC and Alberta and went around. And what were you, a roadie? Mr. Roadie, yeah. Kim's like a one-man band style of guy. <laughs> so I just like, I'd sell the... He was touring with a like a popular guy on the West Coast, uh, so we played at some decent venues, and I'd just help him out with merch and stuff right, like that. Right, like, I'd cool. play a bit, but nothing. I'd get on stage and do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then yeah, he's good. I, I really like the stuff you sent me. That was great. Yeah, he's pretty. Um, yeah, he's very poetic and very like um, talented as well. Beautiful so, voice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got that um, Australian surfer appeal. Yeah. <laughs> I guess which has a good good appeal um, outside. Yeah, and of he's Australia. blonde and good looking and all that doesn't hurt. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, he was just like, dude, you'd love Tofino. Get to Vancouver Island, go out there. Yeah. And Tofino is a bit of a bubble town, um, where because it's very summer, touristy, winter, no one's there, right. businesses shut down. Right. So he hooked me up with some guys and went out there and just loved it. I lived on a. Like I worked in a resort that was a bit out of town. Town's only one street. There's nothing out yeah. there. <laughs> but uh, it was like uh, 10K out of town or so, I think. And kind of just lived on the beach, washing some dishes, you know, just doing whatever you do to get by and surf every day and live in the rainforest. You know, it's cold, but you sit out there with non, like uncrowded waves and you turn around and there's just snow-capped mountains and like yeah. redwood forests. And you're just like, yeah, this is kind of the place to be. But yeah, it's one of the one of the cleanest places in the world. That, those yeah. beaches, you know. That yeah. I mean, I, I we when we were living in Vancouver, we went over to uh, Vancouver Island a few times, Tofino, and then we went up to Cortez Island. Yeah, you ever yeah. been up there? Didn't get up there. I know where it is. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, really nice. But I like Tofino. I think we only stayed there two nights. We slept in our car and got busted both nights. Yeah. But the cops were cool. They weren't like American cops who yeah. would have like, ID, and I, they, they were just like, you can't yeah. sleep here. Go wake up. Go somewhere. Yeah. But. No, I would always get asked for the, the um, good spots to go for people that wanted to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, as an Australian, do you have like, you have like a uh, special, dis, uh, what's the word, dis, uh, dispensation to go to Canada? Do you guys like do? and that. Yeah. Yeah, pretty easily get a uh, two-year work visa. Oh, two-year work visa. Yeah, That's pretty fantastic. Just pay you you know fill in the form and pay pay the fee oh you're pretty wow. much yeah you're pretty good same with same in england you think they'd be nicer to their american cousins yeah. you know yeah I mean, well i think hassle, i think it's right? a commonwealth thing yeah yeah it was a commonwealth thing you guys all easier. worship the fucking queen uh, right? yeah so you get the same thing in south africa i don't know that's part of the commonwealth isn't it i'm not sure i think so Maybe. I don't know. I remember the Commonwealth Games. Isn't that like some soccer yeah. thing or cricket or something? Commonwealth Games is like Olympic Games for the Commonwealth. Right. Yeah. 
Just the I think South Africa is yeah. in that. Yeah, like Zimbabwe and so. shit like that. Yeah, I did, haven't haven't looked at going there yet. Well, well, good good for you and you <laughs> queen worshippers. <laughs> give each other breaks. I guess that's good. I don't know. I mean, nobody needs to give America a break. Yeah, Fuck America. Too. That seems to be the, the international rallying cry. Oh, you're doing your own thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't need anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, so what, uh, I don't mean to derail you. Like, keep, mm. keep in mind what you're talking about. But uh, what was it like hitchhiking in the States? I haven't hitchhiked here since the 80s. Mm. And my impression then was like it was the end of the hitchhiking era. Um, first word that came out is disheartening. It was my first main hitchhiking experience. It not, it's not too. You don't see much of it going on in Australia. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Not, not in like I'm from the east coast, um, Newcastle, a right. town called Newcastle, which is just like well, I guess it's got a lot of people there, but it's um, just like a surf town, beaches. Two, it, two hours north of Sydney. All right. Yeah. It's sort of up toward Byron Bay. Oh, no, a lot closer to Sydney. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just two hours north right. of Sydney. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, disheartening. It was my main, my first main go at it. And um, you kind of go through those modes of fuck the world. Like everyone's got no one in the car. Then you're like, well, I shouldn't expect them to pick me up. They're doing something nice. I look sketchy probably, <laughs> you know. I so got you, a fucking guitar. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. So you kind of go through that, um, yeah, like what is wrong with the world to the world's amazing is delivering everything I need. You know, you go through those Eventually. moments. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it makes me wait a long time. Yeah. No. When I, when I needed it desperately, I, I guess yeah, I got to Santa Cruz at one point. That was the only, um, that was the only dot on the map I had planned because it was a, one of my favorite bands, Slightly Stupid, where um, they never come to Australia. Mm. And I saw they were playing there. I'm like, buying tickets, that's the only thing I got planned down there. So I went to Santa Cruz and couch surfing and, had an interesting couch surfing experience I wanted to get out of. Um, um, was that the seduction? Yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, don't go into that one or not. <laughs> you, you yeah. Talk about whatever you're comfortable with. You. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, it's not like we shy away from sexual uh, issues on this show. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> guess that's the bedrock of... <laughs> Bed, bedrock? Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. got it. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, I guess I really wanted to get away. It was a bit of a... Nice people, like everyone. It was nice. It wasn't a dangerous situation, but it was just a situation where, um, you know, you kind of wake up not knowing in that liminal moment before, before you know where you are or what you are or what the, what the hell's going on to find somebody filling up your entire vision in a pitch black room while you're laying <laughs> on this couch with a sore back, um, <laughs> whispering in your ear to like go and join them in, in yeah. their bedroom. Um, yeah when you definitely weren't keen. Um, so, and then you kind of, you're pretty sure that they're standing at the bottom of the stairs in the dark of the night staring at you. Possibly so, with a knife in their hand. Yeah, so um, yeah. the next day I wanted to get out of there and that's when um, um, I guess she, uh, I wanted to just go down to the hostel for the night or something is what I was saying. And, um, and you know, get a bus down. I said, no, it's fine. They're like, no, we'll take you, we'll drive you down. You know, we want you to stay. You know, like, okay, just let me drive, drive you down to the hostel. They end up doing that and she confessed her love for me, like the one. and In the car. In the car. Yeah, and I'm just like, really honest, I know there's nothing, there's nothing there. I don't know what you're pulling from. But um, anyway, I said, um, I'm going to, I'm going to get out of, well, they, she dropped me off at the um, hostel and it was kind of evening, I guess, later in the day. 
and um, she drove off. I walked straight down the main road and threw up my farm <laughs> straight away. And, um, Get out of town. And that's when they delivered, like, a guy, some artist in a good little car. He's like, I'm going south. Where are you going? And I'm like, wherever you are. He's like, Santa Monica. I'm like, awesome. It's like six hours straight south. We drove through the night. I think I got there at, like, 1 a.m. Uh-huh. to Santa Monica, slept in a hostel there. And then um, I explored, explored SoCal a little bit. Right. Um, but yeah, that was like hitchhiking to lose. I've had. Some... Did you see the show in in Santa Cruz? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. I got good. to see the show. That was important. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. Um, no, I guess to like bring it. Uh... Yeah, I was, uh, Interfino was when I've really kind of thought, oh, this is a kind of place I might be able to find something. Like, yeah, I've got this degree, but I don't know if I want to work in it. I could make good money, but I really love life out here. Um, what do you do? And that's where family comes into it. And, you know, my brother was getting married and I was the best man. And so I'm going home for that. But because I'm so, I guess, disembedded from life where I grew up, you know, in terms of... Disembedded. Disembedded. That's a good word, man. Yeah. Really, really out of all the different institutions of... Right, not, I didn't withdraw myself from family, but, you know, we didn't talk all the time. It was like, you know, I'm kind of making a life over here. And, um, like, always getting supported by my family, but, yeah. And then... Um, when you say supported, you mean they're sending you money or they're just happy <laughs> they, for they, they did a few times. They definitely they definitely support me financially with my studies now. Right. Helped me out big time. But, um, yeah. Um, no, I went... So, yes, I went back and couldn't leave. Got stuck. You got re-embedded. Yeah, re-embedded. And I didn't want to... I did apply for a few jobs in New Zealand, like, in my construction kind of field I'm like all right I'll look at a few things get some money I'm just like I'd keep coming back to those points you know I'd keep coming back to like well it's not what I enjoy like really don't I have all these thoughts out of um my experience in Arnhem Land I guess that's the foundation of kind of what 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 happened is because like I mentioned there was the uranium mines and there's all the money flowing flowing through the hands of the elders there there's a board set up to manage the money that's coming from the from the from the fee the corporations are paying to mine. Um, and you have, like, it, it's a hard one, and this is kind of the foundation of my research now, it, but it's, um, you have, like, the, I guess most traditional is a bit of a, you know, culture's dynamic in that, but it's kind of, yeah, the closer to traditional of Indigenous Australian culture out there in, in Arnhem Land, it's, and it's known for that across the top end. Um, but then all this money and, you know, I'm working with the kids, like the six-year-olds, the seven-year-olds that are kind of the grandchildren of the elders. And, and you know, they're asking me questions like how to spell Rihanna. Or, you know, she, he wants to look it up on YouTube and I think I spelled out like, you know, Bob Dylan or something instead and he went and put that in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Wow, Rihanna's ass is not like I heard. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe that's what he wanted to look at. Maybe it wasn't the music. Yeah. Yeah. No. So are these the, was it Mernjin? Mernjin? What's the name of the people you were working with there? Uh, a few, um, few different ones. The main ones does start with them. Uh, I'm blanking. I remember writing and reading about uh, people there who had been, you know, first contact in 1971. Mira. Mira is where I was. Uh, M-I-R-R-A-R. Ah. Yeah. And they're like, so it it was a strange thing because it it was, I remember there was research about violence in in those societies. And, um, Mm. but they'd been contacted very late, uh, but they like had power boats and... Yeah. We're like really quite acculturated at this point. Yeah, 
Yeah. So it must have been very rapid and disruptive for them. Yeah, definitely it would have been. Yeah. So I obviously only have the experience from, I think, 2010 is when I was there. Right. Um, But But that means they're like elders who could still remember before any of this shit happened. Yeah. Yeah. Living people who remember the the old ways. Yeah, exactly. So that's where you have like, um, I remember going there thinking, because you're like, well, yeah, culture's dynamic. He sh- if he should be able to do whatever he wants. This young kid he wants to look up Rihanna. He wants to, you know, whatever. He should be able to do whatever he wants. But then at the same time, what's going to get lost? Is it going to go the same way the East Coast went? Like with, um, you know, the the standard Australian narrative of like the stolen generation and right. and all of that. Which I guess come to that point is I'm part of that line of the stolen generation. So my grandmother is. Um, um, dark skin she's distinctively indigenous my mum grew up this is on the east coast so it's long past um first contact but mum grew up remotely my mum's fair skinned like me um and so you have that kind of connection there uh you know i'm i'm the result of that those events that Mm. that happened so do you just let that slide or do you identify and have this dynamic nature of culture where um yeah you have traditional indigenous australian but then you also have well we're not going to just let that go because you made us white you know we want to keep the awareness happening we want to identify as, as indigenous but so was your grandmother part of this yeah the people who were taken from their families and i wasn't my grandmother i'm not sure if it was my mum's grandmother or my grandmother's uh, grandmother oh okay yeah further I'm not back because sure, there's a lot of information lost but there are there. a lot that, i mean in australia there were there was a program and, and of course the white people thought they were doing the indigenous people a favor oh, right oh yeah yeah, yeah essentially yeah, yeah. stealing their kids yeah, and protect them um, yeah yep, protect yeah. them and teach them how to be civilized yeah if you look at the um if, everyone, if anyone wants to look at the Wikipedia page for the Stolen Generation, it goes through some detail. And there's a key point there where the, the government pointed officials to that manage this program. They, I can't remember the exact quote, but it is on there on the page. It says something along the lines of, um, you know, within five or six generations, they'll be gone. And that's what they're trying to do, you know, breeding it out. Right. Um, and I guess I'm part of, like... I'm kind of part of that line. Like, I'm, what's my percentage? Like, one-eighth or one-sixteenth or whatever it might be. But... Um, you know, where like, do you just like that slide, or do you like, do you kind of hold on to that and yeah. and kind of use it to keep awareness going? There's, it's actually very um, topical with what's going on in Australia right now with um, Adam Goods, who's a famous Australian football player. He's in, uh, I saw that. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot going on with that, but yeah. if anyone wants to look at that, we won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah. So I'm out there, and I'm relieving. Like, well, it's too far gone. The same's going to happen. That was my definite feeling, and it played in my mind for the next two years traveling. Like I didn't, I didn't, you know, I'd write in my journal and, and all that kind of stuff, but it, you know, it was sitting there on my mind and I was, I don't know how hopeful I was about it. I'm like, what can you do? Or what can I do as an individual? And you kind of have those kind of thoughts. And that's when I get back to Australia and I'm in a deep, dark blue hole. I'm like, don't have anything that I enjoy in life anymore. Like right. everything's gone. So pretty much every day I enrolled in a a certificate for and fitness, so your personal training stuff. And, and so where where are you now at this point? Back at home where I grew up. Back in Newcastle. Yeah, uh. so so I'm there and, you know, me and my mum are fighting and, like, just nothing's go- good going on. You know, I don't really have many connections that are kind of, you know, all my mates are working. I was the only one that went to uni out of my group of mates. So, like, you know, they're all buying houses and, you know, getting girlfriends or whatever and uh, getting married and having babies. 
Going home is the hardest thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pe- so people was, don't know that until they, they experience it. They think adapting to the outside culture is going to be difficult. Yeah. Nothing like going back. Because like you say, yeah. it, it grabs you. All Everything grabs you. All those relationships are just waiting for mm-hmm. you like a fucking eel in the rocks, Re-embedded. Man. Yeah. yeah. Re-embedded yeah. somewhere. They suck you in so fast. Especially when it's you get re-embedded somewhere that you uh, thought you had left. At least in opponent yeah, capacity. Yeah, there's, like, a, there's a feeling yeah. of defeat. Yeah, you're like, yeah. oh, yeah, definitely. But that's where I was like, so I'd spend, because obviously I sold my car, sold my motorbike. I'd spend, so I'd had no transport. So I'd go, every day I'd get on like two or three buses to get to a gym. I'd, and the whole, it was like a uh, round journey was maybe four hours. And, you know, waiting for buses and all that. Right. And pretty much that whole time I'm just listening to podcasts. So, you know, I you know, got on board with the you know, Joe's podcast and stuff like that. And... And when your first appearance on there, that's when I had a moment of, because I've got all these things floating around my head. I've got my, my construction experience and that degree, and I've got this volunteer experience and, and do this community with this development going on and cross-cultural interactions. And then I had a lot of interest in Peru and, and the Amazon and, mm. and ayahuasca and stuff like that. It's probably from listening to the podcast. And then I remember your first appearance on there, like things kind of clicked. I'm like, I might be able to, you know, um, anthropology, like I might be able to do something here. This might be able to like facilitate something that, that I can do. Um, and that kind of, I grabbed onto Peru and, and the Amazon and ayahuasca development and, um, started to pursue grad studies cause I had that, that first class on his ticket. I'm like, maybe I might be able to like mm. pursue something through that. And, right. And yeah. had you done any sort of hallucinogens before that? No, mushrooms. Uh-huh. Not, uh-huh. not, not, that not counts. In, yeah. Not in a, uh, yeah, mushrooms a few times actually. Yeah, and in, in Tofino on the beach with uh-huh. Kim actually. Uh, Kim come up. There was like four of us around a fire. Kim's playing guitar. We had some mushrooms. There was a meteor shower. Oh, you know, no. out there. You know, it's out there. Beautiful. No light pollution whatsoever. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the way to do mushrooms. Not finished. Um, <laughs> there's phosphorescence going crazy in the water. Oh, really? It's it's it, it's it's a, it's a small swell. The moon's crazy big. Yeah. And um. You, know, you got a fire, yeah. Oh, yeah. Decide Music. to uh, decide to to uh, it's midnight. We decide to get a surfboard and take the clothes off and go surfing for one wave. But you can't you can't stay out there for too much longer because it's freezing <laughs> yeah. cold. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Naked in in the uh, Canadian waters is you know, <laughs> is a very brief experience. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was a that was a very good mushroom experience. Yeah. You can't really have the stars align. Right. You, you know, use that pun kind of. Yeah. Um, more perfectly than that but yeah nothing i still haven't done the ayahuasca but that's something that's going to come to me i have no doubt um that's the right approach man yeah to let it let it happen the way it happens definitely could have done it a couple of days ago mm. i was right there where but um it didn't kind of pop its head didn't rear its head up so right. yeah i didn't i didn't go for it but um yeah so i had that moment with anthropology and uh and so i uh, there was a, a government funded tour Australian government funded tour of um, you know the elite school schools, so Stanford, NYU, Columbia, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge. We'd spend a week in each place. The government sends you around to these places. I think it's it's a bit government funded. It's a bit um, 
philanthropic, I guess. Is it like See, a, is th- this is what happens when a government's not spending all its money developing $130 million airplanes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. See, <laughs> that's, that's why you have Uncle Sam protecting you and freedom, yeah. you Australian sons of bitches. <laughs> yeah. and meanwhile, you're spending your money, like, cultivating, you know, cheap education and sending yeah. students around. It's and, much better than Australia. Yeah. It's changing a little bit with Tony Abbott. Yeah, you guys be careful. Same thing in Canada. Mm. Uh, you know, it, right, they've yeah. got some pretty nasty governments in there recently. Yeah. But yeah, and people, Americans don't understand how good the rest of the world is in yeah. that respect. You know, they still think America's best. And so they imagine Australia must be fucking horrible. Yeah. And then you get there and it's like, wait a minute, the buses are newer and cleaner. The metro works. You know, you've got if you've you got health care, right? Yeah. Is this national yeah. health care. Yeah. It's like, no, sorry, Americans. Yeah. It's Europe is better. Australia's better. New Zealand's better. Lots of fucking places are better. Canada's better. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, actually, I was talking about that with um, with my couch host yesterday. She was really surprised that you know, she was talking about education and how much she has to pay for it because I was talking about the fees at Cambridge, um, which, are, which are very big. But the system in Australia is, um, you know, like I paid a fraction of what she paid and I only have to pay it back when I'm earning enough money. Right. You know, it's no like... You're not like in debt, mm. you know, get a job at the Seven Eleven to pay that shit back. Yeah, don't, I don't yeah. have to scrap around. Like right. once I'm making, I think it's over $52,000 or whatever it might be. Don't know if that's changing with, with the new changes, but but that's the situation I'm in right. anyway. Right, But um, yeah, so I have to apply to this tour thing and, and right. go around. We So you go and talk to academics about your research. Are you an academic fit? Does the place socially fit you? Do you feel comfortable there? I remember, like, not liking Stanford whatsoever. How come? Um, no, it didn't seem like anything going on. I don't know. It was like the whole Palo Alto scene wasn't kind of my jam or whatever it would have been. <laughs> it's pretty fucking slick. Yeah. It's, yeah. 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 It's been taken over by the dot-com thing or whatever the, you know, high-tech. Yeah, yeah. I think Stanford used to be a much more interesting place right. in the 60s and 70s. It was yeah. much more sort of... Uh, Bohemian and, yeah, you know, true. what's his name was there? Uh, um, the guy who wrote um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ken Kesey. Oh, yeah. You know, like yeah. he was he was doing uh, creative writing at Stanford and he had a night job working in a mental hospital as an orderly. Yeah. And he took acid at night in the mental hospital yeah. and like had this, f- which is not. All right. You're going to take hallucinogens, people. Go to a beach in Tofino, not a mental hospital. <laughs> Trust me on that. The walls are going to come alive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, yeah. You become very sensitive to the energy of a place. And I wandered onto the grounds of a mental hospital once when I was tripping. That was a bad thing. Wow. And I heard, and there are all these voices and, and I, I mean, it's a long story, but, but the end of it is that I was hiding under a rhododendron bush because I didn't want people to like see me because yeah. like I'd lost my shirt and I'd been running through this forest and I was like, had scratches and blood and mud and I'd been crying and I was like, it was, um, I took a heroic dose. I that was my mistake. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't, haven't been down that rabbit hole yet. <laughs> yeah. I, I read a little too well. much Terrence McKenna. Right, and, yeah. I said, oh, I see. I'm going to take a heroic dose. And I ended up cowering under a bush, hoping the the psychiatric nurse wouldn't find me. Yeah. Um, set Was it set and setting? 
Set and setting. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Your internal psychological set, you know, how you feeling? Is everything okay in your life? You're feeling safe and comfortable? And the setting, you know, where are you? Are you in a bar with a bunch of drunk idiots? Are you in a, on a beautiful beach with close friends who you trust and yeah. a full moon and a fire and a guitar? I mean, that's... <laughs> That's the way to do it. Anyway, so so you do this tour. So you did Stanford and... Uh... Yeah. And, um, in the end, it was because I'm switching disciplines. Um, the U.S. system is... Because I want to do research. I want to do a PhD. That's uh-huh. my goal from the start. Um, but switching disciplines and trying to get into a PhD in America, um, like the PhD, I don't know if it's universal across, but the ones I was looking at were you know, the first two years, a taught course, basically a master's, and then, right. then you get into your research after that. Um, and the master's are kind of a dead end in a large sense. Um, but the UK system set up different. So I ended up applying to Oxford and Cambridge. And that's when I first emailed you is when I got into both of them. Right. I said, yeah, just to let you know that, you know, you kind of kicked the ball off that's got me into Oxford and, and Cambridge. In it. Yeah. Um, and then, then you get funding after that. And then. Yeah, that was yeah. a really nice email, yeah. I have to say. I mean, in a way, you kind of fucked me over because emails like yours are the reason I still look at these fucking emails that I get every oh, day right. <laughs> and feel compelled to try true. to answer yeah. them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't get to them all. But, uh, yeah, it's really nice to see, you know, me sitting there bullshitting with Joe Rogan two years later, you know, has an effect that ripples out and has a positive effect on someone's life. It's even if it's a minuscule, it, you know, yeah. you never know, you know, how much it takes to just push someone that little extra step that might help. I'm not taking any credit for your success, but mm-hmm. just being involved in it is a really gratifying thing. It's really nice. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, like, uh, I think the podcast is, a. Uh what it's a perfect example of a catalyst like mm. for uh triggering things in people's minds to right. kind of move in a certain direction right. and like you've said a few times when people email and you're asking for advice it's kind of predetermined what the decision should be because <laughs> they're emailing you right so uh but um yeah it's um yeah so that path went like going back to studying after six years, especially at Cambridge, like I hadn't heard of Oxford and Cambridge before this tour. You no hadn't idea. heard of it? Not really, no. Like I knew Harry <laughs> Potter. Like I knew there was Harry Potter. I knew it was like a Harry Potter place. Well, now you're like the guy trying to Google Rihanna or something. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> like, true. You hadn't heard of Oxford? Oh, yeah. It's like the fucking oldest university in the world. Yeah, well, I well, like I said, I wasn't interested in university. Yeah, Just kind that's of right. everything kind of the blank canvas kind of got painted for me as I kind of yeah. worked on it. You know, so where did you end up going, Oxford or Cambridge? I chose Cambridge, Cambridge yeah. It was wow. so short. It was a one-year degree, the MPhil. So oh, it was all okay. taught course, really jammed full of anthropology um, must-knows, I guess. So, um, yeah, I'm at, I've got three weeks to hand in my dissertation, which I've just finished field work for. Wow. So Wait a minute. You have three weeks to write it? Yeah, well, it's basically written in a way. It needs to be cut together in a way (laughs) i love that that. i've got a book that's written in a way (laughs) yeah yeah that's exactly how it is i've got bits and pieces everywhere and you know you kind of you know i need to get over i need to like because i'm working you work close with your supervisor that whole oxbridge system right um and i need to send her more but i kind of always want it to be a bit better than i think it is to send to her and um it's all just scattered everywhere and um yeah it's actually been a so coming to a new discipline and to a new university, which is pretty intense, was uh, was yeah, that it was really intense. It was um, yeah, and, and a very prestigious university. I mean, yeah. it's not like you're transferring to the University of Akron or something. Yeah, right. I mean, that's top flight. That's amazing. Yeah, it was. Um, 
It's been a it's been a ride. How uh, much it's been uh, and learning all anthropology. There's a lot to read, right? It's not one of those things like you learn a formula and apply it to something. Look, like right. my first degree, I didn't, you know. It's a whole different setup, and um, that's like that's what my supervisor helped out a lot. She's like an Amazonian specialist. She's a medical anthropologist. Oh, fantastic! Um, yeah, re- really nice lady. Um, and what? So tell me, what is your what's your focus of yeah. your research? Uh, well, I, in my application, it was on ayahuasca developments. And looking at, I was really, I think when I first started, I was really interested in ayahuasca's role in um, like perception of death and stuff like that. I had all these non-academic ideas of what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I'm um, getting there. My supervisor helped me out a lot. She sort of saw my background and, and went, this isn't trying to take you away from what you want to do, but this is a perfect project for you. And it's, right, it's that's taking, really helpful. Yeah. So my first research in my undergrad was all on, um, you know, public-private partnerships, large infrastructure projects, you know, the state kind of selling off its assets, that kind of stuff. So I'm looking at partnership structure and large development projects between the state and the private, you know, like a private consortium. It was like the Sydney Cross City Tunnel was my project. But um, so she saw my, that and then my work experience and said, well, there's this gas mine in Peru, Camasilla Gas Project, which is their largest energy development. And it's um, right on the edge there where there's the um, uncontacted communities are. So um, that's my PhD project is looking at is looking at that aspect of the expansion into their territory, which is very current news. You know, they're trying to make contact with them now, the the government. But um, yeah, so my M fills on um, the current state of the Camasilla and looking at reverse anthropology, so indigenous modes of analysis, and to try and I guess. It's a it's a really difficult proposal, but uh, to try and really look through their lens and how their knowledge of it's it really does come back to progress like what is progress and what is the state of the world environment now and how are these you know the arms of modernity kind of wrapping around and are we at a critical point like and if we are we kind of need to know this knowledge not in a way to like it's been used in the past for anthropology to uh to take advantage of the community to take advantage of the environment and kind of dominate them um but to use that and integrate it in it and not step backwards in a more traditional sense, but kind of integrate that into a, a way to move forward. Um, so obviously I'm focusing on a niche and my focus is on project policy, specifically the environmental impacts assessment, which is like the key document where in anthropology it's called friction, where, where kind of the global and the local comes together. And at this point of friction is kind of where things happen. So the, that environmental impact assessment is a, is the key vehicle that I'm focusing on and I'm looking at collaboration with Indigenous communities, what actually happens, what's, um, what does the company... Um, what do they say they're doing? Like, they, they promote it big time, but yeah. especially in developing com- countries like Peru, it's um, it's definitely not happening in the yeah. way they're saying it all. Or fucking Ecuador or yeah. Brazil. Yeah. I've been writing recently in, in this book about the Warani and the, their... Challenges with Chevron, Texaco, and whoever, yeah. whatever name they're using now. They yeah, keep yeah. selling, spinning off the division, so it's, it's no longer Chevron. Yeah. Now, oh, don't talk to us about that. Now it's Petrocal or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. You ever read a book called Savages by Joe Kane? No, but it's on my list, and you put it on my list. It's a great book. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, I don't know that it would be useful for you, anthropo- you know, in your studies, but mm. it's it's such a great book and and like very very um relevant to to getting into how they think about us right you know like yeah, I, I remember exactly. they they all wear watches 
and they're like way back in some tributary mm-hmm. of the Amazon, right? They're they're almost uncontacted, but they all wear watches. Yeah. Um, but they none of them can tell time, of course, and none of the watches work. Right. Yeah. Um, but then they joke about it. They're like, hey, what time is it in Japan? And they'll look, oh, it's 7 o'clock in yeah. Japan. <laughs> like, they don't even really know what Japan yeah, is, you yeah, know? Yeah. But they know they don't know, and they think it's funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting stuff. So you're, so I got lost a little bit there. You're, you're, you're doing this sort of reflective thing where you want to understand their way of looking at what's happening and, and looking at us and looking at civilization or progress or whatever. Yeah. Right? And how do you know, is that a specific group you're talking about or hunter gatherers in general or what? Uh, no, a specific groups that are affected by the Camasilla project. But okay. I guess, I guess simplistically, like a, a simple, um, I guess a simple kind of summary of it. I'm doing a critical analysis of the project in, in what they're claiming regarding local consultation and uh, and what's actually being um, what's what the outcomes of that consultation and how are they integrated into project policy? Right. So, um, yeah. It's and also, of, what is consultation? Because yeah. when you're looking at a culture that doesn't have a hierarchy, yeah, you know, this whole take exactly. me to your leader. Well, there is no fucking leader. Yeah. Right. So, it, yeah. if it's a consensus based society, as most of them are, it it becomes very confusing to you know like oh we bought this land from your chief well mm-hmm. we don't have a chief mm. yeah but we got the signed document so fuck off yeah. you know that's well yeah that's exactly what what i've what i've found at this point is that yeah they have consultation but what consultation is is a lot of the time them like the, the corporation and the state just explaining what an environmental impact statement is or what the project is and how it's going to work they're kind of defining what they're going to do um and because that's so so withdrawn from the way of life, you know, totally withdrawn, then they're coming in with all this technology about what's going to happen, this we need to put it in this piece of paper, this statement that's going to... The environmental impact statement is the last thing that gets approved before the project goes to operation. It starts to get built or extraction starts to happen. Um, so a lot of it's just explanations rather than, you know, a true consultation that's going to have an outcome that will be inherently put into project policy and then the next point enacted because what's claimed or what's in the documents doesn't come out on the ground comes you know that doesn't happen in the way it's the way it's said so i've i'm yeah looking at voices what voices what voices are heard and how are they heard and i guess what i've really come back to is the because the people i've met when i was in i was in lima for a little bit meeting with um the corporation itself the mine Mm. and then meeting with um because obviously through Cambridge, you have some good contacts. Um, so meeting with the mine, meeting with the state. So, you know, ministry. When you say the mine? So the mine. So um, it's a consortium of uh, oh. of Repsol, Hunt Oil, like oh, okay. some, some huge companies. And this is natural gas it's development. Natural gas, yeah. Right. So um, meeting with them and whatever you find, you have, there's a saying in a quote out of Ernest Becker's Denial of Death. Great book. Yeah, I really love that book. But he... Um, it's along the lines of, you know, an individual has certain beliefs and thoughts that they propel out into the world that kind of create their identity and what they believe in, but they don't relate to what actually happens or how they actually are, you know. They, they're, what does they say, they're, um, they're trenches to, to um, hide from reality, you know. They're, and that's what I'm sort of coming to is the individuals within these companies, like, yeah, the 
there's a lot of bad stuff happening with the, there's a lot of good stuff happening with the mine it's really good for Peru you know but the bad stuff that's happening too to the environment to the indigenous communities the people within the, the mining company they most of them will don't want that to happen they they want the environment to be well the corporation this individual this corporation which is an, an individual is mm-hmm. made up of all these little cogs that no matter the, the, what their beliefs are they're still propelling this greater individual forward you know um Did, have you listened to my recent podcast with duncan the one that just went up yesterday uh no no because <laughs> that's exactly what we talked about. right we talked about this idea that that it doesn't matter if there are good people working for the company. Yeah, the right. company's going to yeah. do what the company's going to do. Yeah. And it and we've got this illusion that there's someone driving the bus, yeah. the CEO or the board of directors or whatever. Mm. But but that's an illusion. It's like those little kid those kid cars, you know, where they have a steering yeah, wheel, yeah, but it yeah, doesn't yeah. matter what you exactly. do. It does. It's not connected to anything. That's going in my. It's going in my, uh, going in my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> use it. Use it. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's I, I argue in in civilized to death that this is a super organism, uh, right? That it's yeah. as as out of our control as a school of salmon is out of the control of any salmon, yeah. Yeah. right? It just happens. Yeah. And if the CEO says we're not going to pursue this project because we're going to fuck up this river and yeah. we know it because you know we always do, mm. well, he'll be replaced. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. so nobody's driving that bus. Mm. That bus is going where it's going, and yeah. you just happen to be on it. You can get off the bus, you know, if you're talking about a company. Yeah, yeah. But if you're talking about civilization, you're not getting off the bus. No. Yeah. And that's sort of coming down to those and how those voices interact in the project, the different voices of, of the corporate level and the, and the individual level and the state and the, and the, um, and the, and the, and the corporation, the, the gas company, they, they talk well. They do, you know, they get along well. But the indigenous organizations, which also are organizations put together, they're corporate in that essence where they're one bigger thing moving in a certain direction yeah but i think there's a qualitative difference yeah definitely you know because they know each other yeah and if you know each other like yeah you can form a an organization you can form a gang you can form Mm. a frat you can form a you know a family but that's different from a corporation or a religion or any other institution that's large enough that people don't all know each other Mm. i think that's you pass dunbar's number that's when you start to get run away, you know, um, uh, what's the word? Autonomy of, yeah. of the organization separate from any individuals. Within. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an, yeah, interesting. Um, the main organization is, you know, they represent a lot of the communities and you think indigenous communities in the Amazon or in Peru, that's a category. Right. Like they're, they're all different. each different. Each yeah. is very different. Each has different visions of the future and, and that's one thing, like visions of future. What do they see? And when, in all my readings, what's common is, um, you know, there's a little touch with modernity and these kind of, you see things that are happening and then they're like, well, that's what we want. We want this, it's part of, we want to move in that direction. Um, but there's not that whole complete understanding of what that's going to mean. Like if you have these things, you become dependent. Right. Um, you're going to need money. It's when... I think a major critical point is when that market becomes disembedded from the, all other social institutions. So, What do you mean? Um, I guess the best way to put it is I add my, my degree is um, split into four main aspects of anthropology, and it's political, uh, so we yeah, do politics, um, economics, kinship, and religion, and um, how they all work together. And they sound very different, but... Um, 
the best example for how the market because money like this money exists like money in in its form here right. doesn't exist in in these communities right? right in that way it's more um I guess like couch surfing you know like I'm finding where I could have that the the free mind of um just paying 30 bucks or whatever it might be for a hostel um to do my own thing but we're here we're here where I'm couch surfing where it, it engages the other institutions so social so yeah we talk we share information we share stories we share um and then maybe in the future there's a you know she's you know the gift the essence of the gift that you know you're I'm in, I'm in debt in a way so she's traveling through somewhere else then kind of and I have that to repay where are you, are you're supposed that. to go join her in her bed. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> no. Uh, you weren't being a good hunter gatherer there, man. <laughs> True. No. Stingy with your genitals. No, <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm a picky man. Say. Really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you, you just were down there doing this research. So you, you were talking to the, the consortium you said, yeah. and then uh, you talked to some native people as well. Yeah. I went out to, into Pekalpa and some other places. It was, didn't have the time. The, the government offered to fly me to wreck to the mine site, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's That's the only, amazing. Yeah. The only way to get there, I just didn't have time. They said, we leave on the third, we can uh-huh. fly you straight there. But if I'm to get there in another way, I go up to Picalpa, then I get on a, you know, I get on a cargo ship and I go down and you put a hammock on a cargo ship and go. Yeah. It sounds like a pretty cool kind it of It does gig. sound cool, yeah. But yeah, they fly you direct out there, but I didn't have time to do that. Um, but went to Picalpa and direct with the indigenous communities out there, like um, the uh, the, rep- the um, organizations that represent them and stuff. But the ones out there aren't directly impacted. They're downstream, but they're not directly impacted by my mind in the way of it's there. Mm. It's their town. I'd, that part of my field work didn't go as planned just because I didn't have the time but it's an MPhil you know the, the PhD field work for, an, like for anthropology is uh, 12 to 18 months so that's when right that's when the proper stuff goes down so are you going to do that degree? Um, well I've got slowly ticking the boxes so I got the offer um, got the funding um, and now I just need to make sure I don't bugger up this uh, this um, dissertation so i do need to get a certain grade but um there's also another track i go through a master's of research which is the first year of the phd anyway mm-hmm. then you reassess it at at the end of that so so you're looking at like how how long the phd in anthropology at cambridge is about four years four years yeah so including field work that's including field work right. yeah yeah and would you do the field work in the same area yeah you'd go back you've got there. contacts now yeah yeah, yeah. But to be honest like i was flying into here and i'm like Oh, I love this part of the part of the world, like the Pacific Northwest. It's and nice, yeah. Like I just like because I'm really interested in the um, in the communities on on Vancouver Island. And you should go up a, to UBC and work with Wade Davis. Yeah, right. He's there now. He yeah. just started like last year, I think. Yeah. You know his work? Oh uh, no. Oh, yeah. oh, he's amazing. He's he's. Um, oh, people should check him out. He's given a bunch of TED talks, and he wrote his first book was about. Um, he's an anthropologist. His first book was about uh, Haitian voodoo, uh, something about the horsemen. I don't remember the the full title, um, but the book that you would really enjoy, actually, is called One River. Right. And it's about Richard Evan Schultes, who was. Um, the ethnobotanist at Harvard who uh, Davis studied with him, as did Andrew Weil and uh, I think, uh, you know, Ram Das and T- oh, Timothy right. Leary. Like yeah, a lot of yeah. these people studied with him. But he was like, um, he did his, 
I think it was his doctoral dissertation on the use of peyote uh, in Native American populations in Oklahoma. But this was like in the 20s. Oh, wow. You know, and then um, during World War II, like in the 40s, he did his Ph.D. at Harvard. But then he, he just like spent years in the Amazon. And uh, he particularly was interested in psychoactive plants. Mm. But he himself, he was not a tripper. He was not a hippie. He was like a, you know, pretty straight-laced scientist. But he spent the bulk of his Mm. adult life um, either teaching at Harvard or in the Amazon doing field work. And, man, it's it's, so Wade Davis wrote this beautiful book about his life in the Amazon and you know, the different, um, he was like hardcore, like, yeah. you know, alone on foot, you know, you wow. know what it's like. Yeah. It's insane. You yeah. Know? It's insane. I mean, you don't get lost, you don't get killed, you don't get like, you don't die from malaria, snake bite. I mean, there are a million things that can go wrong, yeah. but he was this just hardcore dude. And, uh, and then, you know, in his old age, he taught at Harvard and, and, uh, was this sort of like, eminence there mm. um anyway way davis is great he is he did this great thing this ted talk where he talked about an eskimo um uh elder and they uh they didn't want him going out on the ice anymore because his family was afraid he'd kill himself you know it's like taking the keys away from grandpa you yeah. know yeah, yeah. so they took away the keys from the snow machine and like okay grandpa you're you know yeah. no more hunting for you you know so grandpa got pissed off and in the middle of the night he um broke out of the you know went outside took a shit in his hand it was winter <laughs> yeah and shaped his shit into a blade yeah. and then like a little saliva along the edge and with his finger sharpened the blade and it froze you know really quickly in the cold and then he killed a couple of dogs and took their ribs and made a sled, a small sled out of the dog ribs. And out of their skin, he made harnesses and harnessed up another three or four dogs and fucking rode out into the ice. No way. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a functional man. <laughs> that's a dude who knows how to like, craft a good yeah. shit. Oh, you think you're going to tell me yeah. what to do? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand about uh, foragers you know, egalitarian societies, they think, oh, everybody must be a, a pussy who just does what everyone, you know, just does what they're told. Mm. It's the opposite. They're incredibly autonomous. They refuse to be told what to do, mm. you know, which is another reason negotiations are really difficult yeah. because you might get the whole band together and half of them say yes, half of them say no. There's no vote. There's no, no, no majority rules. Yeah. It's consensus. Yeah. So, okay, you, you guys agree. We don't agree. So there's no deal. Mm. But that's not the way the corporations see it. No, I was actually along those lines. I was thinking just yesterday. Um, we kind of come to call them simple, you know, a simple right. way of life, a simple community to to complex. And I really detest that term. Yeah, it's really around the other way. Like here, and I guess in a modern society, you're um, a lot of things are taken away from you. They're done for you in a way. Your food's hunted and prepared, and yeah. you go down and buy it. You're you know, everything else is kind of delivered, takes away that the mental capacity for that to survive in your environment where mm. if you take it to the, you know, the nth degree down down in, in the Amazon, the complexity of living in there, it's, yeah, it's come naturally over so long for them and things have been passed down and everything. But the complexity to go and live there where, of course, I can go and live in England like I'm doing after living in Australia pretty easily and it's not too many things I need to learn to, to go and do that. It's pretty simple, like mm. to readjust, to, to be able to, 
to adjust to that life compared right. with the complexity of a of surviving not just surviving but operating in a in an environment where yeah things are just so deeply complex that you know there's no well you know like you said about the guy who went down there it's just a surprise that he survived you know with all the things that that could happen yeah um, yeah yeah you're right and there's a standardization we talk about how complicated modern life is but you know you got your fucking iphone you can be in any city in the world and it'll translate the language. It'll like tell you where the nearest fucking McDonald's is. And you know what that's like, cause it's like the one in Brisbane or wherever yeah. they're all the same and all that shit, you know, every, the clothes would, you know, Oh, what's your size? Oh, you know, everything is standardized. Mm, mm. And I, I think I tend to think of it um, because I agree with you. Complexity is the wrong way to think about hunter gatherer versus, you know, uh, yeah modern societies i tend to think of it in terms of analog and digital i think our society is more and more digital it's on or off it's yes or no it's it Mm. and the more you know traditional is another word that's difficult yeah loaded but the the less uh you know modernized a society is the more analog it is which also is the more there's more tolerance for ambiguity and and i feel like our species is on this migration from analog to digital uh, in terms of our actual being, you know, that we're becoming digitized. Mm. You know, we've got the, like I said, we've got, you know, what size are you and what, Mm. and we sort of adapt ourselves to fit into the pre-established parameters of what we're supposed to be, you know? Yeah. It's fucking strange. Yeah. Duncan loves that shit. Yeah, Duncan that thinks that's utopian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're all going to go to Mars and it's going to be great. And But I feel like anytime, I'm so, anytime someone's telling me how great it's going to be... No, I understand. People have the same critique of me, right? Because they, they say, oh, you're talking about how great it used to be, which is this, you know, romanticization of the past. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you can... Act, there's actually research... Right. On the past. There's research on how hunter gatherers live. There's research on first contact, uh, you know, uh, situations. There's no research on the future. There's no research on how it's going to be in Mars. Right. So I I sort of bristle at the the accusation of, oh, people like you, you're romanticizing a past that never was. Fuck you. There's tons of research. Right. That's what I'm citing. Read the fucking research and then get back to me and tell me how romantic it is. Tell me about, you know, how many. This is something you can probably uh, speak to better than me. But in my research, I don't find many um, foraging societies that are eager to join civilization. What I see are people who say, leave us the fuck alone. You know, like these sentinel sentinelese, you know, that island off the coast of oh, yeah, India. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah. You know, a helicopter comes and drops food. They shoot arrows at yeah, it. Yeah. You know, no, thanks. Mm. Just leave us the fuck alone. Mm. And, you know, because they're not hierarchical, hierarchical societies, you know, it's not like some strong man yeah. who's ordering people to go shoot arrows at the helicopter. Mm. They're doing that because they all want to do that. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever read at Play in the Fields of the Lord? No, it's on my list. As That's well. a great yeah. book. Yeah. Oh man, I know. Yeah. I, I I come over that book like every episode. But yeah. read at Play in the Fields of the Lord, people. It because it deals with these issues so beautifully, right. so right. subtly. Anyway, so so you're you're thinking 
go back, go to Cambridge, finish your thing, and either continue there and get a PhD. So you're pretty sure you want to do a PhD at this point? That was, that's been the initial goal. The M feel was just the hump. I need, right. I need the um, literature background in anthropology and right. and then to be able to do, and do research in it. So, yeah, so, yeah, the PhD's, like, a week before I left, um, before I left uh, Cambridge to do my field work, I got a call that I got full funding for three years. So Sweet. Yeah, so that's, the, the degree's impossible. If I don't have funding, yeah, because I'm not from wealth, you know. Right. So, um, and that yeah. money's coming from Cambridge or from it's Australia based, oh. yeah, Australian based stuff. Fuck so. you guys, man. <laughs> and yeah. I, I used to when I was traveling in Asia, there were always Australians, like lots Australia, of Australians, yeah. and it was like they their attitude toward life was very different. And at first, I, I I have a very good friend who I'm still friends with this guy, and we met in Rajasthan in like 19. 87 or something like that and uh sean doyle if you're out there he's from newcastle actually oh, really? grew up in newcastle lives in byron bay now oh, yeah yeah but uh you know he was always scamming he was always <laughs> like you know well now i'll go back to to you know newcastle and then i'll like you know i'll, I'll go to uni for a couple terms and then i'll i'll get the dole and then i'll you know and there was all there were all these things or you know i don't want to get sean in trouble but there were things involving travelers checks that right. <laughs> that got lost yeah. and but he he always had these angles he was playing and uh eventually i i came to see that it's just like because the the government in Australia is supporting students and, you know, you're not going to be on the street, yeah. right? I mean, you can, you can get around, you can, there are ways to get around and, and, and have a good life without uh, working your ass off or, you know, working flipping burgers somewhere. Yeah. He's, like, he's pulling at the strings that he's got available to him. Right. And that's what, right. that's what you should do, I guess. <laughs> Well, yeah, and and there should be strings. Is yeah. is my point? Yeah. You know, I'm not saying you know I'm not advocating you know uh, scamming necessarily, oh, yeah. but the problem is the system is scamming you. This is mm-hmm. you know I've had this conversation with my father. He's like you know I just pay the taxes and you know and, uh, and I'm like you don't look for loopholes. You don't mm-hmm. like because you could you could set up a company and then have the company. And he's yeah. like, well, no, that's dishonest. Like, <laughs> oh, really? What do you think they're doing to you, man? Yeah. You know, That's every a, chance they get. Yeah, it's like a lot of people operate on the, like the majority, operate on the surface level of, of the world, you right. know, and, and they're caught up in the, the currents that flow on that surface and what pushes here or there. And not many people kind of get the hell off that surface and step back and look at it. And I think it's happening more now with things like this podcast and more uh, availability of information, things that are stimulating mm. that kind of thought. But yeah. even this is a a niche of people you know yeah. so and you attract certain people so it's still it's still the um the thing that propels everything forward it, right. it comes back and, and that's kind of what i think i'm going to write in my research if we get to that point is that yeah there's those thoughts and of the of the corporate the corporations you know wanted to get in to get this gas to get money and stuff but um and it comes back to the individual of the individual person in life and you know in modern life you know they while we might propel kind of thoughts of being environmentally friendly or recycling this or you know being being um trying to doing fundraisers for this or that or whatever good cause it might be it's still the life we live still requires that gas 
still yeah. requires that oil, whatever it might be. Still, the way we're operating still requires that to happen. So, yeah, the corporations doing it, and they're doing it the way that they do things for their money, and and they're going to destroy this or that. But still, it comes back around to the individual in this life that kind of consumption is the main word. Yeah, but but by the same token, uh, if you're embedded in a system. Right. Like we're talking before about the employees of these companies mm. who don't want to do that, but yeah. they have to do it because that's what you do or yeah. you quit your job and you go to, you know, and then someone else is going to do it. So mm. it's going to happen, as you said. So then here we uh, look at, you know, on the other side, here we are, we're in Portland. Um, you can't really live without being part of the system of consumption. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, to the, to the extent that you say it comes back to the individual. Well, but even if an individual nice says, guy. I'm going to disengage, well, that's pretty fucking hard. How are you going to disengage exactly? You're never going to fly again? You know, yeah, you, never, yeah. you're not going to use... Anything. You're not going to, like... Right. You're going to go live in the woods. Yeah, well, basically which that's woods? what you're going to do. Exactly. Yeah. And then, like, what, you're going to buy the land in the woods? Or are you going to, like, squat on government property and get chased around? Yeah. And it's like there really is no elsewhere. Mm. You know, there's no way to disengage from it. So I, I get skeptical of people who are like, well, why recycle? Like, yeah, yeah, fuck you. You think you're saving the world because mm. you recycle? Mm. I don't think so. I think most mm. recycling is bullshit. Yeah. I, th- I think it all goes to the dump anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I've often wondered that. I've often wondered that. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah. that, it's that same thought. It's like, yeah, if I pick up that bit of that bottle cap over there and go and put it in the bin, it's not really going to do much, you know, if yeah. I do it. And the thing is, if every single person took that kind of approach and obviously that's a simplistic example to put but how would that change things how would that change the things we consume the things that kind of yeah, hurt things that we don't want to hurt hurt the, hurt the host that we're on you know we change the way this virus is um you might have heard heard me and joe arguing about this i don't know which episode it was but at some point we were talking about this kind of stuff and i cited edward abbey you ever read him the desert yeah. solitaire yeah. and the monkey oh, yeah, ranch yeah. gang he, yeah. he sort of his book sort of started this uh, earth first movement they were so-called eco terrorists who would mm-hmm. go and like dump sugar in the gas tanks of road building equipment yeah. so they couldn't build logging roads or they'd spike trees and then put up signs saying and we've got a remote control car running by. Speaking of consumption, <laughs> a couple of kids with their remote control four wheeler in the park, bashing through the woods. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's pretty intense. It's like a, a land-based drone. Uh, he said, uh, Edward Abbey said that he um, was driving down the road, whatever, and he would. He was drinking, you know, Budweiser out of a can or something. He threw the cans out the window. Yeah. And he said, you know, the person he was driving with got was like amazed. Like, you know, here's this super environmentalist tossing cans out the window. Yeah. Yeah. And Abby's response was the cans aren't the litter. The road's the litter. Uh, right. Joe didn't buy that. Joe, Joe get like, well, that guy's an asshole. And yeah. we got into this big, you know, <laughs> conflict yeah. about that. Uh, yeah. But I mean, you know, there is a point where you say, well, OK, we take we pick up the bottle cap. Fine. So that keeps our park nice and clean. Mm. But then what? They put it on a barge down on the Willamette River. The barge goes out to the Pacific Ocean. They dump the shit. Yeah. So what's the net effect there? The net effect is aesthetic, not structural. Mm. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, this is something that I don't know what you do, but my brain, I can't turn it off in these ways. It's like just I get 
it's non-stop and it gets too existential about things and then you get to a point of a big full stop you're like it's no bloody answer it's like well look on the bright side you'll <laughs> die someday yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, right. that's about is it. Is that going to be on your gravestone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the good news is he's yeah. dead. Oh, true. He's not worried about that shit anymore. Yeah. 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 No, it, that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's what running and surfing and all those things are just a little bit of sanity that keeps me in. I've, I've been going right. crazy in Cambridge. To <laughs> take your mind off. Well, to stop thinking, and that's stop why I, I love, you yeah. know, I don't surf, and, and I don't really do, I don't do as much of this stuff as I should be doing, but uh, I had a motorcycle for years, oh, and right. that, that yeah. was a great way to stop thinking, yeah. just because being terrified, you know. <laughs> yeah, you need, to be, uh, you need to be on the ball all the time. Yeah, just yeah. That, yeah. And I often think, you know, I, I sometimes think that's uh, an aspect of hunter-gatherer life that is underappreciated. Because, as you say, it's very complicated and there's a very uh, heightened sense of awareness that's necessary. If you're, you know, hunting in the Amazon, you, you got to, it's like riding a motorcycle. You got to mm-hmm. be conscious of a lot of different yeah. things at the same time. And all of them are, are a lot of them are life or death, right? Mm-hmm. Is that a snake or is that a branch that you're about to step over, yeah. you know? Um, and so, whereas in our life, because we've automized, automized, is that a word? Automated, automated, automated yeah. so many different things. We don't really need to be in the here and now, so you know, cause it's elsewhere. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we're sort of, cause we farmed all those tasks out. Life is safe. We say it's safe. And yet mm. we feel less alive because we're not, because we're able to abstract and think in abstractions and go off into space mm. as opposed to like you're surfing, you're looking at the wave, you're looking at your feet, you're feeling your balance, you're yeah, hole in the moment. You're there. Yeah. 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 I, the, the, yeah. And there's that argument, which is true, um, is that that kind of time, that free, that mental freeness has led to innovation and technology and the microphones we're talking sure. through now, which I enjoy, you enjoy, and a lot of everyone else enjoys. So you, you have Yeah, that. but see, that's the, that's the thing. The fact that we enjoy it doesn't mean it's a good thing. Yeah. Right? I mean, if I'm hungry enough, I'll enjoy a Big Mac and fries. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not killing me. Yeah. yeah. Right? Perfect. So I often think, you know, that, and, and this, I'm doing a revision of the book now, and, and a friend of mine, uh, McKee, just read the manuscript, and that was one of his points. He's like, you should balance it more because people are going to read this and say, but I like my iPhone. Mm. You know, I like my whatever, the microphones. And you, you're you a hypocrite because you make a podcast yeah, and you yeah. use technology. And it's like, that that's sort of a non-argument. I understand that people think that way, but it, it's a non-argument. It. In this world, the way the world is, mm. it would be self-defeating for me to say, you know what, fuck it. I'm not going to fly to Australia to speak at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas mm. because that, my carbon footprint is too that, mm. And I'm not going to use uh, my little Zoom recorder and my microphones because I'm an anti-technologist. Well, fine. That neutralizes my voice from this discussion. Yeah. Who is that serving? That's serving them. Yeah, yeah. That's serving the fucking enemy. By them, I don't mean people. I mean institutions. Yeah. Because I think the struggle that your generation is going to face is between uh, humanity and institutional entities. Yeah. You know, I think it's... It's the struggle we've all faced, but we've all lost. So, yeah. <laughs> so now it's your problem. Yeah. Well, it's like we're, that's the, like what you're saying. It's like we're in the game and 
you know, you play it when you're in it. And that's what I come back. Because I had right. all those thoughts traveling, reading Thoreau, being like, fuck the world. You know, those kind of thoughts. Like, how is it like this or whatever? And then, you know. Um, I got yeah, to I mean, Thoreau we... went to the, to the pond. Yeah. For a year. Yeah. Then he came back and wrote a bunch of books and yeah. gave lectures. Yeah. You so that's, that's the thing. When, yeah. I, when I inject myself into the whatever game I'm in, if you want to put it that way, then yeah. Yeah, I'll, play it the, I'll play it the way I play it to try and have the – to put myself – to use it to have a vehicle to put myself in a position which, you know, Cambridge is a vehicle. Having this piece yeah. of paper would be a vehicle to go, and to, to go and do things, which I do. There's a lot of happening in the mine. I started out at, at there in Arnhem Land. The, the mine's saying they're stopping and at least runs out in 2022. The land's going to – go back to the community. Um, obviously, there's a lot of damage to the land. There's a lot of um, uranium pollution, all that kind of stuff happening. So so I'm going to be involved with that, and I want to be in that position. I have finished my PhD. I'd be perfect in the situation to be able to do that. So, right. so yeah, I'll use all these vehicles within the game that I'm in to best be able to go and do that. So right. I'm much more comfortable mentally in that way than I was, say, when I was traveling, just you know, having that hippie mindset where right. it's like, well, no, this is what I'm doing, so I'll do it the best I can, and, and I'm in that. But also you're older. I, I yeah, think I think I think that initial like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'm just traveling around. I remember when I met Andrew Weil the first time. Do you know who he is? Yeah. Yeah. So I met him the first time. I'd written him a letter in the middle of the night. And, you know, we he found we were in the same city and we had dinner. And um, and I remember him. I was talking about traveling and he and he said to me, so wh- what were you doing? Because I saw I was, I was in India and Nepal and Asia, whatever, for a year and a half or something. And and he says, so what were you doing there? And I said, yeah, you know, just traveling. And I remember this, like, confused look came yeah. into his eyes that I immediately sensed as disappointment. Like, like just traveling? Like, you weren't working on a project? Okay. You weren't, like, yeah, yeah. researching something? Yeah. You weren't writing a book? You, you're just, like, hanging out, you know? Yeah. And I remember that stuck with me for a long time after that, thinking, like, well, should I feel, like, am I an idiot that I just, like, traveled around Asia for a year and a half and enjoyed myself. I mean, I read a lot yeah. of books. I met a lot of people. Mm. And I think ultimately it it led me somewhere. Well, yeah, it's, like your stuff. I was going to say, like, yeah. it wasn't in the moment, but now that's, that was your field work that kind of brought you on the path that took you to sex at dawn, to took right. you wherever it took right. you, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the road doesn't look like a road. Yeah. You know, and unless you turn around and look back and then you see, oh, that was a path I was on. Yeah. You know, I thought I was just bushwhacking. Yeah. 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 So pretty cool, man. So uh, congratulations. Uh, cheers. For cheers. finding a path. Because, you know, uh, I think a, a common theme in a lot of the, these discussions uh, and a lot of the the feedback I get from the audience of this podcast is, as you said, a, a lot of people are a lot of people listen to this i think are young people who like i don't want to do what i'm doing but i don't know what the fuck to do Mm. and i don't know how to make the transition from being embedded you know like you were talking about to first the first step is disembedding yourself and that's exactly what the book uh, vagabonding there's a book called Uh, yeah guy's name but he says your travel your journey to go and do that kind of travel and get out and change that path starts exactly where you are now embedded Right within this you know, flipping burgers, whatever it starts there, and you slowly disembed yourself right. and go and find that new path. And that's a, yeah. that's a really good book that kind of calls to that. That's an yeah. old book. I think it's pretty old. Yeah, yeah Ed yeah. something. I just bought it from a girlfriend. <laughs> if it's the same book I'm thinking of, I read that book like Is it? when I was in high school. Yeah, it's just straight called Vagabonding. Um, 
uh, the guy's name's yeah I'm losing it but yeah I'm going to pause and we'll we'll find the name Walking one day through the big lights Wondering when the world became so tired Bottles of vodka flashed as a Coca-Cola sign Shone like moonlight And I wondered when the world became so wild Even the clearing of the streets, it was all tiled And in the corner stood a tree in a cage And in the screen on the side of a skyscraper Stood a war child nestled in amongst the stocks, the shares Sports scores of the day I thought it does You leave your life too long It's gone before it's done If you hide away I was traveling one day to find a small town For it heard that it was far enough away Arrived late in the night and there was no sound I looked forward to the breaking of the day And with the sunrise I headed for the ocean For it's where I find the cleanest air to breathe And every road down a factory had stolen And the smoke had billowed out and blocked the Don't Leave Your Life Too Long by Kim Churchill, West Buddy. Now let's get back to the conversation. 
All right, we're back. We looked up the book. It's by Rolf Potts, P-O-T-T-S. And it's not the same one I read as a kid, unless it's a reissue. Um, but I read, a, I read this book in, uh, must have been the early 80s or late 70s, somewhere around there. And it was, it, you know, obviously it was about just like getting out, going, mm-hmm. about packing light and, uh, yeah. you know, the just sort of... Functional the, yeah, the way to the way to look at... There's another great book called Your Money or Your Life. I don't know if you've heard of that, no, but it's a great title. <laughs> and, and it's about like, it's about how you can essentially retire on, if you can set it up so you've got like 15 grand a year or something, mm-hmm. you know, I don't remember exactly what the number is, but it's very low. You can set up your life so you get that kind of passive income, right? Yeah. You can just check out, and, yeah. and it is a very practical guide to how to do it and yeah. how to not buy shit you don't need, how to not have fixed costs yeah. that, you know, are completely unnecessary. Yeah, and that's, I guess, makes me think, like, when I did come back and had that really blue stage where I eventually found anthropology and that, um, what I did pull out, I'm like, well, what are the fundamental things that I enjoy, you know? And and I wanted to get in that position where I didn't have to go and work for the man, you know, as it right. said. And so, like, I'd always have certain kind of herbal teas, you know. I'd, I'd look at biologically what works well together, look at all this kind of stuff. I'd have them all through university. I'm just like, well, I may as well put a product on that and make that into a business. So I started, I had, like, I had a few um, Instagram followers at that point. So I'm like, I'll make this business. So I'll, I'll um, do my teas and then... Try and try and make some money that way. So I'm still doing that while I'm here. So if I get an order, mum sends it out. In, oh, in, really? Yeah, in, in Australia, it's uh, oh, nicely yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, get your mom involved. I've yeah. done that with the t-shirts. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to like do more, like make because kombucha doesn't exist in England or Australia. Oh, really? really? Well, not like it does here. So like I, I brew my own in, right. in England. So I'm like, well, I'll add that to my teas. It's call it White Line Primal Teas because my Instagram name was White Line West. So I went that way. I had there's a long story behind that name, but um. So tell people where to get the tea. White uh, whitelionprimalteas.com. All right. Yeah, but it all comes through. I guess my Instagram page is the main point. Just White Lion West. I just and, subscribed yesterday. Yeah, I, so I didn't even up. know you had one. Yeah. I no. don't know what I was. Uh, you know, I'm not good at this shit. I need an no. assistant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. No. It's uh. Yeah, just through there and. Uh, yeah, so and and then the fitness side. So you know, I got qualified. So maybe I can do things in, in that way. And then obviously there's the the mainstream stuff that I'm doing, and obviously the Cambridge stuff and and, and the research and see where that might go with with um, I don't know, maybe playing an intermediate role between the state and indigenous communities, where wherever that might let, might let me. The, the good thing is this Camasia project is under a global spotlight. It's a big project that's happening now in terms of extraction projects. Um, so that, that'll bode well for um, if the research is successful and, and all that, it turns into... Uh, to um, a successful project, and I come out with a with a PhD, then yeah, I, obviously that'll be the key one. But I try to have something going in each of those fundamental aspects of what I'm interested in. So, just obviously, time it takes time. The degree's intense. Things fall to the wayside sometimes. But to try and propel those things forward, and to keep to try and get myself into position at some point where I can uh, one pay my parents back, mum and dad, and, uh, and two, yeah, not have to. Um, I guess not have to submit myself to, um, I guess the, yeah, you know, the the way of typical, you know, flipping burgers in a sense, you know. So, um, yeah, I guess that was it was a dark time, but it was a time where I I, I uh, came out of the water um, and got all those things set up. So, hopefully, within time, I kind of move forward. 
Yeah, I think, you know, the darkest time in my life uh, was very similar to that. It was after I, I went to Alaska, you know, during college and right after college. And then I went to uh, New York and worked for a couple of years in this weird, crazy job. And I was able to save a bunch of money. And then I went to India. And you know, that was the trip in Southeast Asia and India and Nepal for yeah. a year and a half. And then the guy I had worked for in New York... Oh, yeah. offered me a job back in New York and I uh, I was planning to go to Japan. Yeah. Have you heard me talk about this before? Oh, I just remember your, I know you, what your job in the Diamond District. In the Diamond yeah, District, yeah, yeah. right, yeah. right. Yeah. So after that I went back to New York right. and worked as his representative on this um, job site in the West, uh, what was it called? Hell's Kitchen, which is sort yeah. of West Midtown. Yeah, no, no. And uh, it was like the best job in the world yeah. in the sense that I didn't have to do anything except be there. Yeah, And the whole idea was that I was his eyes and ears on the job site. And it was an apartment building, like okay. 18 stories or 20 stories or something. And I was there from the beginning, from like when they started digging the yeah. foundation and laying the concrete. And so I was like, if somebody had an issue, they would come to me instead of bothering him because yeah. he's this fucking millionaire dude who doesn't have time to talk about whether the windows are being delivered tomorrow or not. Yeah. So I was sort of the go-between with the, the architect and the construction guys and the mafia and the inspectors and <laughs> yeah. all that. But most of the time I was just like sitting in the shed reading, reading yeah. and hanging out, which seemed any, any paid, I was paid like way more than That's anyone right. my age yeah. with my lack of qualifications would yeah. have any need. My only qualification was that he trusted me, mm. right? That we were friends yeah. and he knew I wouldn't rip him off or collude in anyone else ripping him off. Mm. But I was so fucking depressed, man. Mm. I mean, I was so fucking depressed and I couldn't talk to anyone about it because they would just be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you're getting paid like 80 maybe. grand a year yeah. living in the village. Yeah. You know, you're in your 20s, you know, develop a coke habit or something, you know, like <laughs> stop fucking whining, yeah, write a book. Something. <laughs> yeah. Or like go to Columbia, do night school. I mean, there's so many things you can do, you know. Yeah. And uh, I was so depressed. And the reason is that I had been out in the world. And now I was back mm. and I just felt like I gave up. I felt like I'd been dragged. You know, it's like you decide to swim across the ocean and a wave comes and you're back yeah. on the fucking beach again. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I'm never going to have the balls and to swim out there again. And it's not that what people talk about travel blues, I don't think either. There's like travel blues when you like go on a holiday for four weeks around for your honeymoon or whatever. And you come back and you're like, oh, you know, back to work or whatever it might be. Yeah. I think it for taking that, that vagabonding style where you just kind of. You know, looking at your foot when it hits the ground, that's kind of it. You're not sort of looking too much further ahead. Right. Um, and, yeah, having that, uh, I guess, blank canvas painted for you as you go. And then, you know, that kind of going for years, that kind of difference, um, yeah. coming, being dragged back from that is, yeah, beyond your, uh, your travel blues. And you feel yeah. like, or at least I felt like, I'm never going to get out of here again, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've been pulled back into orbit. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I'm going through a little bit of that now because this is the first time I've lived in the States long term since yeah, I was, right. you know, 20 or something or 24 or whenever I left. Um, and you can feel how easy it is to just settle back into the country you're from, the culture you grew up in, mm. you know. And being in Spain, even though I've been there a long time, the fact that it's not my culture and it's not my language, there's an edge to it. Yeah. You can't just like, collapse on the sofa you have to pay attention a little bit because you don't really know what the fuck's going on at a mm. deep level you're more 
in the jungle that we're talking about. Yeah. Then, right. Yeah. Even though it's like you're yeah. saying about England, it's like, well, it's yeah. more or less the same, but, but there's still some stuff that yeah. you don't see coming and it wakes you up. Direction. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I like being the outsider. I don't like being like well, just another white dude. That's uh what is it? Is it a George Simmel? George Simmel essay? Uh, it's called The Stranger. Mm. I think it was written in 1920 or 12 or around that time somewhere, The Stranger. And it's like the role of the stranger in the group. Mm. It's a really good read. Mm. And it, it like, it's, 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 a, it's a short essay, but it's, um, when I was, I was reading it for, um, my, my degree, my MPhil and I'm just like, well, this is like describing my life. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you spell the author's last George name? George Simmel, S-I-M-M-E-L. Pretty sure. All right, there's your reading assignment, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. The Stranger by George Simmel. It's an essay. You can do it in, a, in an hour on the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, listen, we've been going. Oh, oh I, I stopped it. I, it's an hour and a half, I think, something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's at least, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it's great talking to you. It's great meeting you, man. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's concrete. Uh, yeah, it's concrete. I got you, yeah. At least for us, it is. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Not for anyone else. But. Yeah, no, it, it's uh, like a lot of. You know, my my sister listens, my sister's partner, he's like, he's um, he's a, he's a big listener. He's like, you know, the whole Joe kind of community. Um, everyone's, <laughs> everyone's like, if anyone, because it's a big Facebook group, the um, Joe Rogan Facebook group, which isn't administered by anything Joe. Right. It's just a heap of people and it's got like 15 or 20,000 members on there. And I, th- and I threw a post up and like, does anyone have any questions for Chris? Oh. And then everyone's just like, um... Uh, shrimp parade, shrimp parade, shrimp parade. Shrimp parade. <laughs> I know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. That's yeah. that's amazing how popular that thing got. That was yeah, it was, that it was, was really a perfect nice. little balance. Yeah, it was nice. I I told you, Duncan and I just did a thing two days ago. Yeah, um, which was nice. Uh, but yeah, Joe Joe adds a, a certain. There is a balance. It's a three way balance, which is you know, I mean, every, the the simplistic version is what, what is it. Joe's the the body, Duncan's the spirit, and I'm the brain. I uh, think right, is the yeah. way most people yeah. break it down. That makes sense. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely not the body. Although Duncan's been working out, he's got a personal trainer yeah, I've been and listening to some of his podcasts lately. I hear he's yeah. he's getting like in really good shape. Yeah, yeah. Once you get once you get addicted, you're like like I was in the jungle working out every morning. I have to get up and run or do something. You know? Really, just like if I don't do that, then my day's not on. You know. I, like, I wish work. I was like that, man. My wife's like that. Yeah. You know? Um, I can't do my riding if I don't run or go to the gym first. Really? Morning. Yeah. Just clears that mind. It, the mind's too chaotic beforehand. I don't know. It's some kind of... It's a meditation. It's... Yeah. You, everyone would probably have some their own type of meditation to get in that mind state. But I... I spend a lot of my time trying to get to that mind state <laughs> rather right. than actually... Like, I think you've had a saying is... um like a constipated dog going around. That was my wife yeah, talking about yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe if I ran, I wouldn't spend as much time going around in circles. Yeah, it'll just flow out nice and, nice and slippery. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing like it. Gotta, yeah, I think Mark Twain talked about how, like, taking a dump is a much underrated pleasure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess everyone secretly loves it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> nobody talks about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if you want to like improve your life in one quick, easy step, my advice is learn to shit squatting. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, I don't know how you're going to do that if you're going to squirt, squat on, <laughs> squirt as well, squat on your toilet yeah. or like, you know, squat over a, a fucking, you know, bucket and then dump it in the toilet. I don't know what you're going to do. We have in our apartment in Barcelona, we have an Asian toilet. We yeah. had it installed and everybody thought we were nuts. Yeah. But it's so superior to sitting on a fucking chair. Yeah. I'm telling you. Anyway, I've, I've, I've talked about that on the podcast before. No one needs to hear me. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah, good note to end on <laughs> feces, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can end on it. You could start. Yeah. So that was the only question. Shrimp parade. Yeah. yeah, that was the main one. There was a few others that, um, yeah, like deep ones about you know modernity and stuff like that. But um, we've yeah. we've uh, we've gone through that a, yeah. a little bit. So uh, yeah, the shrimp parade. The problem with the shrimp parade, ladies and gentlemen, is that it takes place in Los Angeles, mm. where I no longer live. I lived there for six months, and that was right. as much as I could take. Yeah, sure. And even then, we weren't living in. We were living in Topanga Canyon, which right. is this hippie enclave up in the mountains. Yeah. But still, I I just got back yesterday from L.A. and it's like. It's 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 a weird thing. It's like diamonds in a big pile of shit. Speaking of shit, you know, there's Duncan's there, Joe's there. Yeah. I've got you know other friends who are wonderful, fantastic, interesting people. There's all this media. You know, I could be on TV every week. I could be on the radio. I could like have tens of thousands more listeners and people paying attention to me. Um, but the quality of life. It sucks. Yeah. And I don't care enough about fame and fortune. Mm. That's my big failure as a, as a media person. I yeah. just don't care that much. So, you know, it's like, well, the, the benefits, the, 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 the tangible benefits don't really matter that much. And the, you know, daily life sucks in LA. Mm. The water sucks. The air sucks. The aggression of just like the, everybody's like trying to cut in front of you. And like, yeah. if you drive like a normal person, leave a space between you and the car in yeah. front of you, you just have a constant stream of assholes in BMWs, I like pulling, pulling in. in, like, fuck you guys. That was the only place in all my, in all my travels everywhere, Asia, hitchhiking, everything. The only place I felt unsafe was downtown LA. Oh yeah. It's the only one place I felt unsafe. Yeah. Uh, that's a good place to feel unsafe. Yeah, that's right. an accurate <laughs> feedback <laughs> loop you got there. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, uh, I guess I wonder if people care more about uh, the shrimp parade or or more about your uh, your desire to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I, I can't handle America, much less L.A. I mean, you know, I can do Portland. I mean, look, look at this. Look at where we are. We're surrounded by these huge pine trees. There's a big open green expanse in front of us. There, like, there's a woman sitting there alone reading a book across the little field we're in. This shit wouldn't happen in L.A. Mm. You'd have, like, danger. You'd have cops. You, you wouldn't, you know, there, there are no parks like this in L.A. It's, it's a quality of life issue. And, and the more I travel, the more I learn, like, it doesn't matter how rich you are, how famous you are, how big your car is, your house, or mm. whatever. What matters is, like, did you, was today enjoyable? Yeah. You know? That's all that matters. Yeah. So... Yeah, Casilda and I were talking about that the other day, and we both agreed, like, I'd rather live in a really shitty little house in a beautiful forest than a mansion in L.A. Absolutely. So yeah. that's the essential decision. So that's why there are no more shrimp parades, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I've, I've, I said to Joe and Duncan, I'll fly down 
yeah. to do one, you know, anytime. Nice. It's only a couple hundred bucks. I'm, yeah. And I've got family. I'm happy to fly down. Yeah. But trying to schedule the three of us is a nightmare. I bet. Yeah, I bet. So um, I hope it'll happen again. But, you know, in the meantime, I'll just hook up with Joe when I can and Duncan when I can. And if we all happen to be there at the same time, then we'll do another one. Happy days. <laughs> <laughs> so hello to everybody in Australia. Thanks for listening. We sell so many T-shirts to Australia. Yeah, I know. Um, it's fantastic. Bought a lot. I sort of, the gift, the perfect gift. So I'd buy... You know, I'd buy a Duncan shirt to give to, you know, my sister's boyfriend for for Christmas or, you know, <laughs> I, I've bought a few of your shirts. Oh, really? My sister bought... I owe you well, some money. My, my sister bought the Civilized to Death shirt and got it sent directly to me in Cambridge. Oh, So okay. that's actually, yeah, um, I had my girlfriend Lucy wear it and I sent you the photo. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Did Remember? I, did yeah, I you post, post it? it? Oh, you okay, good, on, good. On, on Instagram, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's cute. Yeah, no, she's, yeah. she's a really cool chick. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks for doing this. Uh, is is there a website people should go to? Or you're not you're not hawking anything. Not hawking you got anything. your teas. Yeah, you, but I don't know. If, yeah, everyone's interested. Buy in some teas or whatever from, from uh, West yeah. Mother. Miss, yeah, Mrs. West. Put put Mrs. West to work. <laughs> <laughs> so say the website again. White. Um, it's White Lion Primal Teas, all one word, but it's all linked through. Instagram, like White things. Lion West, White Lion West. White Lion West. Yeah. All right. Cool. So, um, Thanks, man. Cheers. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with West a month or two back. Um, put Mrs. West to work if you want to get some of those teas, especially if you're in Australia. Uh, I want to finish this with another song by uh, West buddy, Kim Churchill. This is called Dying Sun. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, Hope to have you back next week. Ciao. Wandering through islands, the seasons will call out your name. Hoping for reasons that never were promised in this game. It's always the same. the same And you're flying that birds are aligned with the falling of the day And in dying the sun proves to me that it's coming back your way It's always the same Always the same this feels like home For the first time In a long time And share the load Of your mind You see they are older than my name And degree dust moves through light In the most enchanting of ways Never the same Never the same